Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Sweetman, and we're up to episode 103, where I had a chat with uh, a guy I've been wanting to get on the podcast for a while. I sort of uh, I held back on talking to him for a bit, um, and then we've, we've sort of just been, you know, the usual things, sort of planning it. Um, Richard Langston, he is a music nerd, a music enthusiast. He is a journalist, a poet, a broadcaster. Uh, he's been a roving reporter. He's a TV maker uh, and, and reporter. He directs episodes of Country Calendar now. Um, he sits in for Kim Hill on RNZ. He's um, He used to run a fanzine, a flying nun fanzine in Dunedin. Uh, he lived in the UK for a while and met people like Morrissey and Billy Bragg just as they were getting their careers going. So he has got a ton of stories. Um, somewhere deep in this podcast, he talks about being shot at in East Timor. I mean, the stories just keep coming. So I, I know Richard, I've, I've, I've met him a few times at gigs and, um, and various sort of things around Wellington. And um, I've been a big fan of his poetry as well. So it was really nice to sit and try and talk through all these very many things that he's done. Um, buckle up for this one, it's a good long chat and I think um, there's some, there's really something in here for everyone. So um, thanks as always to Tea Leaf Tea, Le Petit Chocolat and Yeasty Boys and you'll hear me talking with Richard Langston. You know, your imaginations. Yeah, well it's Dylan, so. Dylan says um, writing's a mixture of uh, memory and imagination. Yeah. It's a perfect mix. That's a perfect thing to say, and it, and it should be a perfect mixture of that. Yeah, it has to be. You know, imagination is great. I think that um, it's it's squashed. It's interesting. Are we rolling? Yeah, man. Oh, only um, only just now. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's it's interesting because journalism. It, well, when I started, it was such a, so fact based. Mm. It, uh, that was all it was about, was mm. about getting it right, as right as you could. And I mean, uh, th- we'll set aside all arguments about, you know, <laughs> in fact, at, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a white guy, I was a white kid and, you know, had a middle class upbringing. Well, well, I actually had a working class upbringing. Yeah. But anyway, we'll set all that aside. Yeah. You, you were after the, the, the best set of facts that you could get. Yeah. And that's what journalism was about. But... And I loved it for that. I loved that, and I loved trying to actually write a sentence because mm. I was so shit useless at English as a kid. When I wasn't useless, I just wasn't very good at it. Yeah. But I had a lot of um, ideas and thoughts, and I thought, well, I, I should work on um, trying to get the tools to tell it, I suppose. Mm. And mm. journalism was a good thing for that. Mm. Um, and I didn't know... I, I, I sort of... Um, I remember my first story for a newspaper, it took me, it was just agony to write because I, I was all at sea. I didn't know what the story was and yeah. whether I had the right angle. Mm. And, and I can still remember it. It took me like five days to write. Yeah. And I, I was a cadet reporter, so I guess you were given yeah. time to do it because you had to do other menial tasks, such as the shipping news. And, and that was great too. Mm. Uh, it only dawned on me later how kind of uh, amazing it was that you had to get that right. What time it arrived, what time it left, these big huge ships mm. that you could go down to the harbour and see and talk to the harbour master. And so you started to learn about life. I, um, I remember telling someone that the first gig review I wrote for the Evening Post 
took me most of the night. You know, like I, it was just That's a three hundred. It was a just a three hundred word review, and I had written reviews before, but you know the pressure was on, and I felt mm. so. And because it was the evening post, it was a you know next morning deadline for a for an afternoon edition. Yeah. So I had the night, and I went round to a friend's house to borrow a computer to write it. And I was up till about, you know, I went to the show and I, I worked on it from about 11 at night till about 4 in the morning. I printed it out, I read it, I, yeah. you know, I went off and smoked a cigarette and crossed lines out. And I was doing a mixture of what I thought old newspaper, you know, what I'd seen in movies yeah, and, yeah. and what felt right, you know, what, what felt right to but me. But it is, it is dramatic. Yeah, totally. You, you, That's you, what I mean. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you've got to write this thing. Mm. And it's a different skill being a reviewer from being mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. a reporter or of a court reporter. Yeah. But they both require deep concentration. And there was a, there's just a pride attached to it of wanting to get it right. Which, you know, like a review... Well, that's a harder a, thing in a, a review, review, though, because it's co- Of course, because right? exactly, I was going to say, it's not about going, right, well, I've got all my facts lined up. There's, yeah. there's no facts apart from naming the right band in the right venue, you know, or whatever, like, that's it. But, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, Because have you seen... The, um, I mean, you would have seen loads of other journalism movies, but the post that's out at the moment, which people have problems with, but what I loved about it was it's from an era before I ever started writing for mm. papers, but... It triggered all that stuff in me right, of my first of my that. first few newspaper sort of deadlines and mm. and because uh, I'm thinking I think I actually I did publish a couple of features with the paper before I ever wrote a review and same thing like those deadlines were a really big deal to meet mm. and took it really really seriously and you know remember going and buying five copies of the paper the first <laughs> the next day the first time I had something yeah. in it. <laughs> Yeah, all well, I, well, I can be grateful for, thank God, my first story did not have my byline on mm. it, you know, because, and actually, you know, uh, you, I wouldn't want to read anything I wrote in the first 10 years, yeah, probably, because yeah, yeah. it's just, you are just trying to get it straight yeah. and write a decent sentence yeah. in that, and I... I'm, you know, it, it was more about writing about the thing than being a writer, actually. Mm-hmm. I didn't really get to fall, you know, really get a deep kind of obsession with mm. words until I was in my early 20s. So I was started at 17. So those first three years, I was just trying to uh, report, describe what I'd seen or who. Mm. It was quite cool because I was a rugby reporter. I started out as a sports reporter. Mm. And that gives you a bit of leeway because you do have to observe and report. It's mm-hmm. it, and you're not going to get sued. Yeah, not that yeah. I was saying anything bad. It's just that you can kind of yeah. report as you see. It, yeah, yeah. It was quite a freeing thing to do, actually. Yeah, it's somewhere between reporting and reviewing. Yeah, kind it, of. It's sort yeah. of, but sort of, you know. You're still a reporter. Yeah, but you are able to. Yeah, yeah. Gives there's, a, a, there's little, a little room to move. Yeah. Whereas when you're a court reporter, it was no, shit, yeah, shit yeah. scary. Yeah. You know, because my shorthand wasn't great. But you had to get that stuff right, and it mm. really made you listen. You become very good at listening, and that's a you know that enriches your life. Listening, mm. you mm. listen to everything. You know, well, it, all writers are magpies. Mm. Mm. Listening, well, you know, listening out for something. Yeah, yeah. I always remember Renee, the the writer, female writer, fantastic woman, editor and encourager, always saying how she overheard great lines of dialogue in the street. Mm. 
and that's cool. She's just written a book two hands. I must read it actually. Yeah, yeah, I've read about that. Yeah, she's, I haven't read the yeah, book yet, she, but I've read a couple of amazing um, pieces about it. Yeah, yeah, she's good. She's really good, and she's she's also she's. If you send her a piece of writing, she's a really great critic in mm-hmm. in saying, okay, maybe you chop this, maybe you chop that. Here's, I what, here's some what of my works. Poems. Here's what works. Here's, and she was yeah. and she's she's fantastic enabler. Mm. I've been lucky like that. I've had a few other people who've done that. Brian Turner sort of set me straight a number of times on things and told me a, a lot of key things about trying to write a poem and what mm. you're trying to achieve. Mm. It's a similar thing, except poetry has that you must that element of imagination or invention mm. you don't have with straight journalism mm. although I was just thinking you know on the way to coming here remembering some of the people who influenced me early on in journalism and it was just it was absorbing their writing there was a guy called Keith Cronshaw Peter Cronshaw his son um, is a television reporter and television producer Keith was one of the best writers I'd ever read and, and still remains that way, even though he's a newspaper reporter. Mm. His prose was just bristling. Mm. Really, sh- it shone, you know. We couldn't wait till his... He used to write a column called Miscellany every Wednesday in the Christchurch Star and we couldn't wait for it to come out so we could learn something about writing, not about what he was saying. Mm. Well, for me, it was all about how he wrote. Right, yeah, it was yeah. so unusual. Yeah. It was kind of a poetic shorthand. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, that's making me think about uh, you know I had I had those reactions to you know when Steve Brawnius did the back page of the Listener you know mm. and think mm. you know mm. obviously lots of other people but I just remember being fascinated by that for the long for the longest time I and mean, obviously his writing is still mm. great and there's so much in it but that back page of the Listener particularly was one of those kind of columns where yeah, it didn't matter what it was about at all mm. it was irrelevant it was about the kind of the technique that he. Yeah. showed and showed off you know like he was so good the nuts and bolts of writing of you you know become fascinating mm. obviously and I, I and one of the reporters i remember writing on the he he wrote on the christchurch star he was describing it was a story about how it was the start of duck season duck shooting season mm. and he wrote a piece about how the ducks would know to land on the pond <laughs> And not not fly and be shot, mm. you know. They'd all congregate on the Avon or something. Mm. But he used a phrase in it. He said, "I don't know what goes on in their feathery recesses." <laughs> you know, their feathery recess. And I've never forgotten that. I always thought, now, what has mm. he done there with language? Yeah, he's compressed something, and it sounds nice, feathery recesses. But mm. he's he's given me the idea. He's brought the duck alive in two words. Mm. You know, and that's what I—that's what you're trying. That's what I was trying to learn from from writing. Those little phrases that are sort of somehow rich with meaning and almost rich with meaningless, as you know, with a lack of yes. meaning as well. Like yeah. they, they allow you to attach your meaning to them. Oh, I just think it's yeah, it's it's vital, vibrant writing is yeah. just a, a ple- as Philip Larkin said. He said a poem should be a pleasure, and I always think that's a great thing to have said because. There's so much nonsense that goes on around about poetry being difficult, mm. etc. But Larkin just said it should be a pleasure by God. And well, I that's, it, that's isn't so it? good. Everyone who you, or just about everyone I imagine that you hear tell you that they don't like poetry or they don't connect with it, that's because they're approaching it as a chore. Yeah, yeah. or they're reading the wrong poets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, not the, yeah. the, the wrong poets for them. For them, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because, you know, hopefully there's not too many wrong poets. Yeah, so 
I'm just trying to think. Um, we, you know, we've met a few times, but mm-hmm. I I want to know about all of the different things you you do, and and there's so many. But I do want you to take me right back to like, I guess where you grew up and where you first. The the thread is going to be, you know, language and writing because that's. And, and and journalism and because that's the the thread through all the different things you've you've done really but mm. where do you where do you find that as an interest you know how old are you when words mean something to you and where do you grow up and what are you experiencing early on i don't like i say i don't really think i got words till i was in my 20s mm-hmm. I, I was not a great student at school um Really, I, I I didn't start really reading widely until I was in my twenties, right. and that was the influence of music and musicians. Yeah, I was going to say music's the other obvious thread, yeah. but I, I I think of that as yeah. linking to well, I, you know, the Christchurch Star was a was a real formative experience for me. I started, but before that, I started on the Evening Star with Roy Colbert, mm-hmm. and Roy was the, the music writer and also. You know, as it, we most people will know, it became you know a, quite a linchpin in the mm. Flying Nun mm. um, expansion, and was a promoter. And so he was my first boss in newspaper. So that was you know a, a massive thing. I, I didn't realise how how much of an influence he had had on me until mm. later on in life. You know, because he was such a smart guy and such an unusual journalist he was outside the mainstream he was more mm. like a rolling stone kind of journalist mm. than he would have been if he was in the states but here he was on a newspaper in new zealand mm. in dunedin he was a sports guy too so he wrote about sport mm. he was brilliant i used to read a sport about sport i was not interested in table tennis for example just because he could write he could bring the game alive mm. fantastic writer so he was the first teacher for sure mm. that i learned from and that's another great, you know, that's another great uh, skill of great writing, isn't it? Is that it should make you, even if it's just for those pages, it should make you instantly interested in a subject that you never thought about before or thought you weren't interested in. Yeah, Roy could make, yeah. Well, Roy could write about anything, and it was interesting. Mm. He used to write a hilarious cricket column, a satirical cricket column, mm. and again, that was another column. People used to wait for that column to come out because mm. it was so funny and so beautifully observed. Roy was a great observer. of of people mm. he was smarter than he he was he also actually he 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 could drill into people and how people were behaving who was a straight person who was a corrupt person so in fact he, he never was an investigative journalist but I, I think i learned more about investigative journalism from him mm. than just about anyone else yeah yeah just because he he knew that he, he knew the full story about someone. Mm. If someone was a pissheader and a rooter, Roy would know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he would know. And yeah. he, so he opened up this whole other world. He didn't just look at the person as a cricketer. He looked at them as a character. Mm. And that was a real lesson. Mm. Mm. So we well, all right. So if words take a while to to really get into your life, when does music hit? Because obviously that's a, a lifelong passion. Yeah, well, there was always music. I mean, you know, when I was 14 or 15, the raspberries, and there was always music in the house. Mm. And my twin, I've got a twin sister, mm. and she liked music and the Beach Boys. But it wasn't, again, it, you know, it all started to happen 
when I started mixing with other journalists. I mean, Russell Brown, you know, mm. he was a fellow journalist on the Christchurch Star, and he was way more obsessed with music than I was at that particular time. Mm. But it started to happen with the clean to my obsession that's that's when it started when i saw them Which, play in dunedin in you know 79 or so that that was quite a thing you know. you're talking about an obsession that lasts to this day yeah it yeah. does i mean yeah well I, I i guess you know that i just think they're just one of the best bands ever yeah i i just there are some people who I guess if you hear some, some people who strike a chord in you and make you happy and make you very, very glad to be alive, I always found it strange that the clean mechanical trade as people who wore black jerseys shades and were quite cold because their music's just incredibly warm mm-hmm. and buoyant. So I always found that weird because their music only ever made me feel good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can give you other feelings as well. I mean, point that thing, yeah. that song, I still hear that song and, and there's new things in it. And that to me is the, um, it's not a nostalgia thing. I always get annoyed when people say to me, oh I give it, you know, that's just because you mm. heard that when you were 20. It's not. Do people say that about Beethoven? They say, oh you just want to be in Austria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You did in, in 1780. Oh, yeah. No you don't. Mm. You, you, some things just strike a chord in you and, and it never stops. You know, I, mean, I didn't see The Clean until about 2010 or something, you know, but I'd seen, um, yeah, that's and I'd seen Clean yeah. play solo a few times and I'd listened to yeah. Clean records, but I'd just never seen them and when I did, I kind of went along with this excitement, but worry around expectation, you know, was, yeah. was I going to see a dud gig or a really great one and all that, and it was, it was phenomenal, and it was, and you got this feeling straight away, and I've seen them a couple of times since, but you got this feeling that it was like, you know, it was never going to be like that again. Like, every show had its own flavour. Oh, yeah. Like, every show, they do not play songs the same way. Never. They do not have the same set list. Well, you know, they, you know? They, they toured in 2007, and they, they had a vague, uh, well, quite a strong country tinge. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it it depends, you know, where each of them is at in their yeah. own musical life, adventure. Yeah. yeah. Like David would have been listening to, spent a lot of time listening to a lot of country music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming you know, up that thing, yeah. yeah. Hamish should be listening to Krautrock and yeah. whole lots of psychedelia. Yeah. You know, um, just have hears a prodigious. They they're all huge listeners to yeah. music, mm. and and so you know, and it, they don't they aren't people who listen to music that's you know, for want of a better word, fashionable. It's just open slather. Why would you? Why would you think that a new band is the thing? Mm. <laughs> when there's a massive back I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that all the greatest music's been made. I'm just saying a lot of the great music has been made. Yeah. And it's like I never knew this band Silver Apples. Mm. I'd never heard of them, and somehow I did. And I just thought, shit, you know, this is this is a perfect band for me to listen to. Yeah. They sort of droney, German, yeah, yeah, yeah. New York, but psychedelic, yeah. fantastic. Never heard of them. Yeah. Silver Apples, and I was. You know, and that's what I love about music. Yeah, it's great what you can find. I'm going through that. I'm being a total nerd and going through that thousand and one albums right. book. Yeah, and I'm I'm reading it like 
entry by entry mm. but I'm making a list of the albums that I have not heard and I'm, yes. I'm writing I'm listening to them and then writing a little sort of not quite a review just a little sort of pricey sketch mm. about you know why have I missed this and does it mean anything to <laughs> and, and does it mean anything to listen to it now now I'm doing you're going to mark yourself down I'm doing, yeah, why did I'm, I? no I'm doing this only for myself obviously but it's because how it came about was some you know someone said to me a few years ago oh you've probably listened to every album in that book and I was like well, no way, but I reckon maybe I've listened to half. And then I got curious and I started mm. going through it with a pencil and, t- and ticking them. And yeah. I thought, well, if I'm going to be that much of a dickhead, I'm, I might as well, you know, maybe I might as well tick off the ones I haven't listened to. And so I think there's a couple of hundred in there. And I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've listened to 30 in the, just in the last sort of couple of months. Yes. And I've found, you know, there's probably only been two or three albums where I've gone, fuck. Yeah. That is actually amazing how I've yeah. not heard that. But none, well, but, but none of them have been bad. They've all been, you know, there's, yes. not, there's not a single one yet. Because I'm only up to the late 60s. I've listened to a lot of yeah. stuff from the 50s and into the 60s. Right. I know as it goes on, there'll be a few where I'll, where I'll be like, yeah, well, I, I purposely avoided that. Like, I know what that band sounds like and I, yeah. I didn't check that out. But it is a fascinating little experiment, oh. finding out that, you know... Isn't it great to find out in 2017 or 18 that your new favourite album was released in 1956? You know, mm. like that, that's as valid as yeah. as hearing the thing that drops on Spotify tomorrow morning for the yes. first time and liking that as well. Like you, you're allowed to do both. Mm. Well, I I have this theory, you know, well it's not a theory, it's kind of a, a, a notion that everything is happening at the same time. In that sense, that music mm. doesn't matter what was made in 1957. No. That, Time is irrelevant, mm. you know, and you can apply that to history, you know, mm. and uh, you can apply it to anything. It, it, for a writer or, or someone using their imagination, everything can come into the present. Mm. And that's what makes everything much more interesting. Mm. That if you don't just live in your time, you live with all that's happened before you. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm, totally. I think that's what makes life so rich, and that's why we read. And you know, that's the and listen, the best and, thing I've ever yeah. learned to do was read. Mm. Uh, and you, because it opens everything to you. And, you know, I just think of people who haven't had the chance to read. Maybe you know, people who've ended up, you know, you know, disadvantaged or in prison or something. And so often mm. that literacy is missing. And you can't express, you can't understand. You're caught in a narrow set of thoughts, and mm, you know mm. you can't expand your. You you know one of the great things that we do as humans, and we read because we want to find out about other people's lives. And sometimes we read, and often we don't want to admit it, but sometimes we take not pleasure, but we take perspective from the fact that other people's lives are worse than ours mm. and if you can't read about that that's really difficult i think mm. I mean, you can mm. watch television but it doesn't it's not the same thing no reading's a deeper thing your reading's asking you to picture something it's not presenting you with a picture yeah and you, you know. when you read you're tending to be you're hopefully in, in a place of quiet mm. and yeah you, you've you, chosen you, you've you're, you're, you're absorbing and you've chosen to it's do it active you're not, absorbing yeah. of the world yeah. uh, as opposed to wallpaper yeah things sliding off from your eye yeah yeah and you just sitting back and zoning out mm. you, know, you can't zone out and read no 
No, it's no, an active. Not, yeah, it's not a passive thing. I, yeah. I read some writer was I was reading, listening to an interview with a writer the other day, who was saying that his father or something was dismissive of him because he was reading. He said, you know, was, yeah. if my father had been a mechanic and he was working on a car, mm. <laughs> it's the same for me. I'm mm. a writer. I'm mm. reading. You know, I'm trying to fix my own writing mm. by reading other writers. Oh, I get that. Like my my mum said to me, I said something about how many books I'd read last year, and my mum said, "Oh, you've got too much time on your hands. What are you doing that for?" Uh-huh. And it's like, well, you know, now I'm choosing to do that, like, and I'm fitting that in around what I'm doing because it's really important to me. And well, I'm I read a, a bunch of different yeah. things, you know. I met a poet in the United States. He's a very good poet, Gerald Stern, mm. and um. He said to me he took 10 years off to read. Wow. 10 yeah. years. He, he <laughs> just read. He was a teacher mm. at the time. Mm. And, oh no, he hadn't even started teaching. It was very early on. He had gone to university. I think he decided he wasn't learning enough. And he just went and read for 10 years. Mm. His father was appalled. But of course he turned <laughs> out to be this fantastic writer. Mm. And he's he's done a right, I think. You know, he's, well, he's won, he's won awards and he's... yeah. He's a terrific poet, and yes. So, but I'm I'm too guilty to spend enough time. I I need to read more because mm. it's just great. It's just fuel. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think like the best advice any writer can get is is to read. You know, yeah. like to, it's, and you need someone to tell you that. Like, I remember you know as both a kind of journalist, if you like, and 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 as a creative writer, like writing poetry when I was younger the best advice was being told to to read and obviously to kind of lay off a bit and slow down and read and you know maybe I haven't quite done that I still pump things out but I I have had moments where I've sat back and 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 read more rather than written lots you know Mm. when you get into the daily grind of writing that's a different kind of writing you have to do it so not everything's going to be a masterpiece it's about meeting a deadline providing something mm. you know providing a snapshot but yeah reading is you know if you're not writing i think you have to be actively thinking about mm, it or something mm. it's funny you know i sort of feel a bit lazy actually because i know people who work who write you know much more and work way harder than me but i sort of i'm roy colby used to say to me he was lazy and i never thought of him as lazy he used to write all the time but I, I, I escape writing by making television, mm. which is a really, a really a great thing to do. I, I absolutely love making television. Mm. I mean, I, I'm so lucky I, because I always say, yeah, it's a place where writers who are a wee bit lazy to write go, <laughs> yeah. because you can imagine, you you, you can visualise a story coming mm. into being. I can visualise. If I go and meet a farmer or visit a farm as part of my work at directing for Country Calendar, I can visualise their story within five minutes of mm-hmm. meeting them. I can think, yeah, this is this is how it's going to be framed. Yeah, and yeah. And because I've is... made enough television after yep. twenty years to know kind of, I won't say the formula, but of course there's a formula to it. It's like there's yeah, a formula yeah. to writing a good song, mm. um, and it doesn't require that much imagination as writing a song does, but it still requires a beginning a middle and an end mm-hmm. and uh it's a great thing to go and do that in, in the countryside because 
it's um, all you need is morning light and a camera mm. and you're underway you know shit in New Zealand it's pretty hard to fail in most places well it's going back to that Bob Dylan quote isn't it it's, yeah you know well yeah but you don't you, you, you don't it's a different kind of imagination to make yeah, a piece yeah. of television yeah. it's a it's the visual imagination yes. although you know great writing too has amazing images and and, mm. and as well but the images will be before you when but you it's make just television a, it's just a different medium for storytelling. Yeah, and it so is. And so it, it requires, is. you know, and it and it it requires an instinct. And yes, there's a formula. But what what say you are also bringing to it is your experiences completely outside of that formula as well. So yeah, learn, not so much though, Simon. You you kind of have to, you know, journalism teaches you too that you have to have a discipline to tell the story that people expect. Mm-hmm. Which is more conventional than maybe the one that you would imagine, mm-hmm. you know? Because the funny, you, when journalism, you meet someone and they tell you their story, mm. and you tell that version. But there's other things that have happened in their life that are equally amazing. And you think, oh, that's good. I yeah, can work yeah, with yeah. that. But you, you know, that's you not your yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you have a when you go out to make a country calendar, your job is to portray those people as mm. accurately as you can and as beautifully as you can mm. because it is it is a beautiful thing to make because you've got a combination of light and landscape and it's uh, I just adore it mm. and actually you know when I'm out driving around New Zealand the music in the car is a huge factor to me mm. I love driving I, it makes songs make sense sometimes I, mm-hmm. I, there's a song by the Gordons called The Machine Song. And I remember driving through the South Island, the backbone of the South Island, down through the lakes, through the Mackenzie country. Mm. And that song made more sense to me, even though it's a kind of industrial song. It was, it's such, it made sense in that huge landscape. It was up to the landscape, is mm. what I would say. Mm. And that was a great thing to experience, you know. So, so parts of your life do cross over in strange ways. You know, I could never talk to the farmer about how I played the yeah. Gordon song, the machine song, yeah. on the way you probably know it. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, the, it, it's, it's great luck that mm. these things can happen to you. Mm. Well, um, let's go back to your timeline mm. and, um, and, and, and work our way from, you know, hearing the raspberries and whatever else to, to country calendar via some of the newsroom stuff you've already touched on. So what's, what, what happens for you? You grew up in Christchurch. No, I grew up in Dunedin. And I was born in Ashburton, mm. grew up in Dunedin. Mm. And then my first job was on the Evening Star when I was right. 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, like I say, I became, I, I, I did shipping news and all that sort mm. of stuff, picked up the weather map from the bus station, mm. took the took the copy to the post office mm. so that they could telex the story to Christchurch maybe and it would, NZPA would yeah. spread it out. I mean, it was so old. That's the technology we had, yeah, you know, yeah, the telex, yeah. the typewriter, etc. Yeah. And uh, then I went to the Christchurch Star which Mike Forbes was the editor, who's still up to Muldoon, and I'm wearing my Muldoon t-shirt yeah, yeah. tonight. Yeah. Not, not in honour of Muldoon, because I had no no admiration for him at all. Um, anyway, I did have admiration for the Michael Forbes, who was who died, died, as many people have, actually, who, are, who I've known as journalists. Um, 
he stood up to Muldoon, wrote a fantastic series of editorials about him, you know. Mm. Uh, one of the few people he did actually, his own cabinet never stood up to him, mm. but Mike Forbes did. Anyway, yeah, I think they say it shortened his life, I hope it didn't, but anyway. And after that I went overseas, I went to London and, and um, worked as a cycle courier and a freelance journalist and uh, I met again, one of the a formative influence on my life, like Grant McLennan from The Go-Between. Mm. They'd gone to London to make it and I just happened to uh, interview them. I went to Rough Trade Shop and heard that single, Cattle and Cane, and thought, shit, this is what? This is the strangest song I've heard since since the clean. Mm. Actually, I had left. Um, the last gig I saw before I left in Christchurch was um, the Tall Dwarfs and the Clean. Playing, it was a double bill. Mm. Three bucks to get in. And it, it was just the most blindingly great gig. Yeah. I, and so I went to London and I was so disappointed with what I saw locally with the local bands. You know, I didn't really see anything that knocked my socks off like yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw the Cramps and I saw the Smiths early on. I yeah. mean, they were all good. Yeah. But they didn't strike yeah, that, that visceral, same... No. Yeah, charge. No, I mean, the Cramps were fantastic. Yeah, they, yeah. They were. They were just amazing, you know. Yeah. Great, visceral. Yeah. They were everything you'd hope they would, yeah. they would be. Yeah. But I was underwhelmed by a lot of the, sort of the English bands, really. And so... Yeah, I can see how the go-betweens would. The go-betweens though would bridge that gap. They were they 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 were more an English band than they were an Australian band in a way. But to, oh, to you being over there, yeah. they would almost they no, would almost they connect would, back to New Zealand. In yeah, a way. well, it was a song, Cattle and Cane. Mm. It, 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 I mean, that description of heat. So you, yeah. you, I was London always seemed to be cold to me, you know, because we never had much, much money, lived in mm. kind of grotty place. But I enjoyed London, I loved it. I mean, mm. I learned so much and I met these people. You could plot a few episodes of Country Calendar to Cat on Kane, you know, you could you drive could, it. You yeah, could, well, it's such a great that's thing. A, yeah. I met Robert Forster actually Well, I was, gonna, I was just going to ask you, what was it like? I watched you interview Robert Forster at Slowbo, chat with him. Yeah. And uh, what, what was that like based on, I mean, you, you sort of referenced Grant and, and, yeah. and talking with him, but talk about full circle. Like, yes. 30 years took or me so 30 years to, get, to, to yeah, complete the set. Funny. Yeah, yeah, Grant yeah. was a really personable guy. He was mm. really so knowledgeable. He was intimidatingly smart mm. and intellectual and knew everything. And if you quote the lyric at him, he, he you know, he, he might correct you. He, he was he, he just knew shitloads. And he wrote that song, Cattle and Cane, which made which made me want to go home mm. because it was so hot. You know, was it in the, in the sky a rain of falling cinders? Now to describe heat in Queensland like that is so mm. beautiful, mm. and it, it's just the ultimate romantic song. But it's, it's kind of odd. The song's really odd, odd beat. Mm. It's just odd, and it's wonderfully odd, and that's why it's lasted straight. Yeah, yeah. straight, great doesn't last as long. It's perfectly imperfect. Lindy Morrison's drumming. It's mm. the times all waltzed. It's mm. weird. It's what is it, eight twelve or something mm. like that. Mm. No much technically about music, but it, it just it gets in there, mm. and so to see. But but Robert was always too intimidating. He was mm. too tall for me to approach. It was like I could yeah. I could deal with Grant because I remember Grant. It was like the third time I'd interviewed him when they came to New Zealand. He said, "Well, can you talk to someone else?" And I'm like, 
<laughs> don't want to. No, I can't talk to Robert. He's <laughs> yeah. too tall and too scary. Mm. And, and you know, he always looks preoccupied. Mm. I actually went to God. This is a memory coming back. I actually went to Smith's Bookshop in in Christchurch with Grant once, and he he bought. What did he buy? He bought. He knew so much about New Zealand literature. It was staggering. Mm. You know, he bought something like maybe he knew Ronald Hugh Morrison backwards, but he bought short stories. I can't remember who it was now, but you know, that's the sort of person he was. Very mm. bookish. Mm. No criticised for that for being too bookish. You know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but so Robert, I couldn't approach. But um, over the years, I suppose, you know, um, just my fandom. It was yeah. overwhelming, so mm. I, I just had to blur it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, look, I've been listening to you for 30 years, it's ridiculous, and, um, uh, but I need to ask you these questions, really. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was marvellous. I, I, that, that chat with him at Slow Boat Records, I could have. Well, it was brilliant, and it, and it, and it um, I mean, you nailed it. You, your, your, um, Lifetime of preparation for it. <laughs> well, it would be sad if I got it wrong. Well, that's right. <laughs> it would, well, you're right. It would be, but you didn't. You know, your lifetime of preparation for it. It's one of those things where, you know, and I, and I, I identify with that. I've, that's happened for me, you know. Yeah. Like, when I when I went and talked to Phil Judd, I was incredibly nervous. Yeah. And people have said afterwards how much they enjoyed that and how that worked. And I was kind of like, well, I had been preparing for that my whole life. Yeah. I, I, I can remember being four years old and being blown away by a Phil Judd song, and it's never left me. I think you should be nervous, though. Yeah, exactly. You owe it to, to the people you really yeah. admire to be nervous. Of course. You know, it means you care. I'm nervous interviewing anyone, really. I always think, well, I don't want to get it wrong for them. That's right. You want, yeah, you want it to be a, a, I'm the same when people come around here. I want them to, uh, or I go and meet people sometimes for the podcast. You know, every, every conversation is different, but I want the person to have not felt like they've wasted their time. Yeah. I want them to, and, and hopefully a little bit more than that. You know, hopefully mm. they've hopefully they've told some story they've never told before, or they've told the story they've always told, but but it's a good one, or they've told it in a different way, or whatever. But I hope they got something out of it. They didn't just politely reply to an email and then oh, regret think, showing up. No, I think unless you're you know like a celebrity and you're. Um, you know, trundling out the same stories and mm. feeling the need to promote something. Mm. I don't think any person um, who's who's other person who's being interviewed wouldn't do anything but enjoy the experience because it, when you talk about yourself, you actually do learn a little bit about yourself. Yeah, you know, and you remember things you. Yeah, yeah, you have tr- memory. As you, <laughs> you know, you, know, you, you just do did, remember. You, members, you remember things. Back, yeah. You remember things that yeah. y- you did, and that and that's all enriching. You know that memory because that's where writing comes from memories and and mm-hmm. if you can expand them to relate to other people mm. that's the trick of being a writer so you can illuminate other people's lives by using your own so what hopefully. Ha- what else happens for you in london well really that yeah, i mean i worked as a, as a yeah. cycle courier i know london i still know soho reasonably well because the maps in my mind from being a cycle courier I met a lot of musicians. I met Paul Weller, mm. uh, which was kind of disappointing because, you know, we, I was such a fan of the, the jam. I hadn't really, had, I'll predicate, I'll, I'll qualify that by saying I, that by that point, I hadn't really understood how much they were influenced by The Who. Mm. 
mm. and that the Who were vastly better. And <laughs> yeah. also, I hadn't, you know, hadn't really f- that stage understood how great the Kinks were. Mm. Just a lot years ahead, mm. you know, Ray Davies is one of the best writers in any form. I, I he's just so great. Um, but he wasn't. I met Billy Bragg. He was really cool. He was only 22 and he'd made that first EP. And he, wow. he was great. And but the see again. You know, so I write a story about Billy Bragg and it gets published in a magazine in London. But the really great thing that happened was I met Reckless Eric. Mm. He was in the same office trying to get a record deal with Go Discs. Right. Or hanging about, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's the guy written those songs, you know. Mm. I'll go the whole wide world to, just to find you, you know, mm. all those. And it was that to me was more thrilling yeah, but right. I never wrote a word about that yeah, yeah, but yeah. of course now I'm remembering I can still see him yeah. Eric Golden sitting there at the table looking slightly forlorn you know it just was you know I'm not imagining that he was slightly forlorn I read his book actually he wrote an mm. autobiography it's staggeringly funny it's bloody oh, brilliant that, it's yeah, one yeah. of the best yeah. because it's so de- it's beautifully self-deprecating yeah, cool. he describes this whole, whole incident people should never write about going to the toilet just shouldn't do it ever it's just wrong people make television and show the toilet don't fucking do it it's just hideous it's like filming in someone's open mouth when they're eating don't do it it's just one of my bugbears but Eric Goulden writes about an episode with his auntie's dunny or something it's just side-splittingly great David Sedaris did a pretty good story about the toilet did he yeah yeah, right good well i'm pleased to hear that but again that's someone you can admit you know imagine that's a guy who can who can do that yeah Yeah, you other the mortals yeah avoid the dunny yeah no i think that's a good (laughs) i think that's a good writing tip (laughs) read heaps and don't write about the loo no don't 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 you dostoevsky will not have written (laughs) about the dunny And he will not appear on a website or called Rate My Turd or something. <laughs> Apparently there's a website called Rate My Turd. Oh, anyway. So how long are you in London for? Only only a year. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of formative. Yeah, I meet with experiences. People. Birthday and, party, yeah. Nick Cave, they, they were all there. You know. And in their ascendancy, you know, like... Yeah. About so, early, yes. I mean, I said, wow, when you talked about Triffids, Billy Bragg. The Triffids were about to arrive, yeah, actually. Yeah. The Triffids were about to arrive. The Smiths were pretty hot too. I mean, mm. they were a pretty good band at that point. Mm. And I met Morrissey, interviewed him in his Kensington apartment. And that was, he, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't equipped to interview him, but he was actually fairly pleasant. Wow. And, yeah, um, yeah. and, and um, I can't remember, it was in published and Rip It Up, I can't remember a word of it. I met John Peel. Now, that was another formative experience yeah. about, about just no ears and graces just be yourself and don't ever get sucked into the bullshit because appeal i didn't know this but i do remember him saying he was such a nice guy i was so incompetent i went and interviewed him with my tape recorder and it didn't work god and unbelievably (laughs) i said oh i rang him again god knows how i got through to him Mm. but i did i said look i'm really sorry but I, the t- it didn't work and anybody else would have just said well you're a yeah, fucking idiot yeah, yeah. go back to New Zealand where you yeah. belong <laughs> and he said oh okay I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll, we'll have a curry and we'll make sure it works and he took me out for a curry and did the interview again yeah wow what a gem yeah and actually when I started writing a fanzine uh, later, later when I got back 
um, I sent it to Peel and he was he wrote postcards and he was just yeah, the wow. loveliest loveliest guy and so genuine and he loved getting flying nun stuff yeah yeah he just loved it because it was it was new and it was exciting and it was different mm. he was never jaded and he was one who said um oh I yeah he said well he said a lot of interesting things among them was um he he couldn't really understand people who stopped listening to new music which mm. I found interesting because I had come from a town, Dunedin, where there was a lot of emphasis on listening to old music. Mm. And, and the Kilgour brothers, that's why, that's why the Clean were more interesting than most indie bands. Way more interesting. Because they had an encyclopedic knowledge of what had gone before them. Mm. So when they made their music, they brought a whole lot of other stuff. Have you seen that? Because uh, if you haven't seen it, I'll... I'll I'll send it to you after this, but have you seen that thing that Hamish wrote for me? When yes, I, I did. You know, when I asked him to... And yes. I, that, that came about when I asked him yeah. a couple of questions via email for... for that was the book. point, that thing, was it? Yeah, uh, no, 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 it was... Uh, it anything was, could happen. Yeah, anything could happen for the book. Yeah. And he wrote like 1,600 oh, words. No, great. Completely unpunctuated yeah. as a reply and just went... It all, and then just said, is it okay if I send you this? This will work better, I just want to think about it. And... That's a classic example of like a potted history of everything that came before yeah. them and everything that came well, before that, that song. Well, I met him at that time. Yeah. I met him at the time that he wrote that mm. song because, mm. strangely enough, and Roy Colbert must have been behind us, Hamish got a job on the Evening Star where I was mm. a cadet reporter. Mm. And Hamish came in there and I could just tell that he did not have that kind of uh, discipline. He, 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 well, he had no training, for God's sake. Mm. And so he, he, and he was an imaginative person. He'd been to university, he'd studied the beats, he poets. I mm, mean, mm. his head was in a completely different place. But as he says in that song, um, you know, basically a, an uncle gave him a lecture telling him he mm. needed to get a job. Mm. Well, you know, and, and he did. He worked for 4XO, the radio station down there, and advertising, I think. And then he ended up at the Evening Star, but I could just tell that he did not have that thing that a journalist requires, which is, um, you know, straight, fact, remembering, mm. writing. He was a creative yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. It, yeah, you couldn't instill that in him. No, and he wasn't interested. No. It was not his... His persona not was how, not yeah, him. Just wasn't how he works. No, I mean, God. Never gonna be. And, and you know what? I have the most bloody undying admiration for those people mm -hmm. be creatives who live on their wits and their talent because Jesus it's scary mm. you know it's, it's, it's no place to go for the faint hearted mm. I mean you know I've been a freelance journalist for oh, I don't know what God, uh, only six seven years and I found that daunting after mm. being salaried by newspapers radio yeah. and television I and, I, and it gave me an insight into my mates in Dunedin who mm. make this music mm. and get bugger all return for it mm. and keep making this stuff. I yeah. think, you know, you could see it as pig-headed and whatever, but I am just full of admiration for what they do mm. and uh, what comes with it, which is... Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's sort of, it is stubborn in a very admirable kind of way. Yeah, I, I just think you know, that, never th that's never the thing they have being... to do, though. Mm. It's it, it's it would be terrible if they didn't have that attitude. And mm. I mean, it would be terrible if Martin Phillips decided.
to get an office job and not write Pink Frost. Yeah, that would yeah. just be wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I do admire people who don't apply for grants, who just do the bloody thing because yeah. they need to do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I also think that, you know, you do need to support artists and, and have grants and things, mm -hmm. but I always, I always have special admiration for those people who have the nerve found a way to just and keep doing it. I mean, I think of someone like Bob Scott, mm. Robert Scott from the Bats and the Clean, and he's just a prodigious yeah. producer of work and and really fine work, you know, and a prolific um, visual artist. Or well, seems yeah. like a prolific. Visual he is artist. a terrific visual and artist. very good. And yeah, very yeah, yeah. good, you know. Yeah. Modest, modest yeah. is the you know just yeah. no tickets on himself yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, sort of mysteriously modest. I, yeah. I sort of want to try and crack Bob open sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. Say, what is it, Bob? How come you can write these great love songs, these mm. tortured songs? And every time I see you, you're just level and mm. normal. And oh yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, mm. yeah. Great album, Bob. Fuck, I love that record, Bob. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm, oh, oh, good. Yeah, okay. Mm, I better write another one. You know, just the great work ethic. I, I love that. So what took you to London? Oh, well, you Interesting know. Interesting getting OE, out. And OE, OE. My yeah, grandfather yeah. was English. My right. mother was English. So you had a ticket I had, in that I'd sense. had the aerograms yeah, yeah, yeah. as a kid in fountain yeah. pen. Curiosity and, and I just, birthright. You know, yeah, a colonial had to go yeah, and see. yeah. And learn, and then. So it sounds like you packed a lot in in that time. Yeah. You had some pretty, as you say, some pretty formative experiences. Yeah, I did. I was lucky. Just what was very it? Lucky. And you got homesick, um, here in Kettle and Kane. Yeah. And I did. then you do go home. And yeah. how is it when you go home? Well, it was weird. <laughs> it was weird. Yeah. It was like life had stopped. Mm. I remember getting to Auckland, and I saw Russell Brown. I said, "Geez, I mean, you you kind of." Oh, you're, you're, you're a bloody noble, patronising little nerd when you've come back from overseas and think you've seen it all and yeah. at 22. And I, I remember saying to Russell Brown, I said, Jesus, Auckland, man, it's so slow. Yeah. I found Sydney slow. Yeah. And then I found Auckland just slow, slow. And Russell just looked at me and said, wait till you get to the South Island, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Mm. And I... Yeah, no, shit. I thought, oh, God. Well, I loved it, too. I loved the freedom. It was summer. You know, I loved it. I went to live in a house with some friends, and it was a great house. And, you know, and then I got... The, the excitement, though, was the, the music. Mm. To come back... You know, because I the, actually the last gig I saw before I left was the Chills playing in Auckland. And, um, you know, I thought they were fantastic. And but by the time I got back, they were even better. I mean, they were great. They were terrific, and they were the thing in nineteen eighty three four. I think when I got back eighty four, um, and so there was just this incredibly exciting music scene mm. that had really happened in the wake of Toy Love, the Enemy Toy Love, and the Clean, and it was. It was just, it was exciting. It was more exciting than London because I, I'd seen the creation label, the start of the creation label in, in North London, and I thought that's the closest thing I've seen to what to the Clean were doing, yeah, yeah. you know, years ago. Yeah. And I liked them. I saw a band called The Loft, and that guy, Peter Astor, has, mm -hmm. the, We're the Prophets, and I followed him. He's a really, really good, mm. you know, he's a, he's a Lou Reed freak, so he, he'd fit in the Dunedin thing too. Um, but to go home 
that was the excitement. So I realised that life had stopped, but it stopped in a good way. <laughs> I got a yeah. job on the, the Otago Daily Times, became the council reporter, and um, just became fascinated with what was happening with these bands. And, and I'd read fanzines in, in the Rough Trade Shop in yeah. London, things called Snipe, and they were rough as guts. And, yeah. But I liked them because I read them, and there was one that was quite good called A Bucket Full of Brains. And they were really great. They they knew their shit, and they went, they had people like Jen Clark and these people who mm. were really good, mm. but kind of you know you didn't really read yeah, stuff in the kind mainstream of the... press about them mm. because maybe because they weren't popular. They weren't, yeah, they they weren't pumping out product. But you read about Jen Clark, you know, from the birds, and you just thought they're great. These things mm. have got great interviews with mm. people you're really interested in. Mm. So you, that was a way of finding out. You know, it was like a fantastic newsletter mm. for music freaks. And then I so started, I thought, well, I should do something like that, maybe. Maybe I could just sort of put some goofy kind of comic book thing together yeah. about what's happening in Dunedin. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll do one issue and see what, photocopy it and, and see yeah. what happens. Yeah. Well, you know, it sort of went pretty well. I, I photocopied it on a... On some other photocopy, we worked for the government, who yeah. shall remain nameless. Because yeah. we had no money yeah, yeah. for it at all. And we couldn't even afford a new typewriter ribbon looking back and looking at the quality of the print. And um, we just went from there. And I did this one. Chris Knox was amazingly helpful. James yeah. Kilgow, who was at Flying Nun, was amazingly helpful. Sent graphics. Chris sent a back page um, cartoon thing and wrote and did lots of stuff, did an interview. Mm. you know by post or whatever it was how it was done and in a, in a way we sort of went mm. and um then we did two and it's kind of yeah it was we sold it all over the country three got better and thought shit we're actually doing something reasonably useful here and um it kept going through to issue five when we got much better and um more disciplined mm. yeah. And probably bought more mainstream journalism and asking sensible questions. Never yeah. that sensible, but reasonably sensible. Just that sensible. grounding and, and yeah. proper journalism being yeah, just taken out into a hobby sphere. Yeah, yeah it was, exactly And what was that. your connection to Roger at that point? Like, when did you connect with him? Well, I, I sort of, you know, I met Roger, yeah. obviously, but yeah. and I went to a few gigs with him, but... You know, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, because I was in Dunedin, he was in Christchurch. Yeah. He was great. He was yeah. really good to me. Yeah. I remember going to his place and he had like bookshelves full of books and yeah. landfall. And I was really getting really interested in all that stuff. Mm. Landfall and reading about, reading New Zealand poets. So it was, it was a very exciting time of discovery mm. of a lot, just not just the music, but mm. New Zealand writing, Owen Marshall, mm. starting to read people like that and reading really great short stories. Mm. The day Hemingway died and my brother and oh, a bottle yeah. of, my brother and a bottle of The Cabernet day Hemingway Sun. died is, is a great, is, great story. It's like a great New Zealand song, isn't it? And it's, oh. it, you just mentioning that, I'm like, you know, I know Owen Marshall's well known and mm. in many ways and well received and all that, but he's kind of like a he's kind of like to the short story in New Zealand, like David Kilgore is to guitar playing and, yeah. and that kind of songwriter. Uh, he, yeah, he is to me. Yeah. Well, that was he. He's just a fantastic writer. Mm. My my favourite short story probably New Zealand short story is a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon with my brother. Right. Yeah. That is an exquisite yeah, yeah. story yes. about a guy 
who lives out in the middle of like West Melton or somewhere in the Canterbury Plains. Yeah. He describes the real heat of Canterbury. And he describes talcum, it being like talcum powder on the side of the road. Yeah. And, and it's the real heat of the New Zealand summer. And, and, this, and this guy, student, goes to visit his brother who's on this kind of lifestyle block and he's got a crazy neighbour and uh, the most wonderful element of the story that I remember mm. is um, the fridge is hot as Hades and the fridge creeps across the floor at them. Yeah, yeah. It's got this big bloody, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just beautifully observed. Yeah. And it's got an exquisite ending too. Oh, it's must read. There's another good one, um, the homily of Mr. Pooh's. That's another All right, I know really that one. great one. Yeah, I'm very. I, I read. I read uh, the Master of Big Jingles and um, and the day Hemingway died. I just I yeah, was I remember just riveted. The by day it. Hemingway died's amazing. Yeah, yeah I remember I that's one of the first times I remember reading a a short story and and kind of identifying. You yeah, know, actually going. I understand what, and I, you know, I was younger than the character in it, but just going, I mm. understand how that character felt, like what that meant to him, and how mm. frustrated he was that no one. He writes a story like about a young yeah. kid whose cat dies, Bathsheba or something, and that's another kind of memorable yeah, story as well. Yeah, some amazing ones. Yeah, yeah he's terrific. Yeah. Terrific. I loved his. I love those early short stories of his. I haven't really kept track of his novels. His poems mm. are good too, obviously. Mm. Mm. Not as good as his short stories. Yeah, though. I haven't read his novels, or, or I have read some of the poems, but the short story is the his short form. story. Yeah. His form, I think, yeah, is just yeah. majestic in it. Yeah, he, he, I think his poetry is a bit closed for my liking. Mm-hmm. It's very skillful. Yeah, but but I think his short stories are open and beautiful, and yeah. really capture an essence of New Zealand. So, well, let's bring the poetry in then. So, when mm. when do you what? When does poetry kind of figure in your life in this in this Obviously, obviously, there's poetry and songwriting. You're already observing things like how you describe the go-betweens. Mm. You know what, what you take from that in a mm. way is that that's speaking to you like poetry will speak it, well, to you. Well, it, well, it yeah. was. I mean, Grant McLennan was a huge mm. reader of yeah. like W. H. Auden. I yeah. remember going and seeing. Like he was in London, and this pretty. Um, yeah, well, it was a nice place actually. It was when they first got there, and Rough Trade had signed them, and they put them up in this nice place just around the corner. Mm. But he had like a shelf of W. H. Auden. Mm. Like shit. So I, I think that awoke my idea that oh, okay. So he reads a lot of this stuff, and and I, the first thing that really hit me was um, the Penguin American uh, collection of poetry. Just a collection. I, I don't mm. know how I came by it or got it. Or I must mm. have bought it. But that was, became like my Bible for 10 years. Mm. I just read and read and reread Ginsburg. Um, just all the Robert Creeley. Mm. I just read them. And then, of course, I'd always been exposed, I, I guess, to New Zealand poets. I, mm. I must have taken a notice of them without really noticing I was. I Baxter and Turner, mm. Ryan mm. Turner and David Eagleton. Uh, you know, I saw David Eggleton very early on when he was, um, um, you know, doing stuff around for schools. Mm. And I remember thinking, that was cool what he did, you know, that's great what he just did. Without really registering that this was going to be, this was going to be important to me. But mm. I do remember it. And Loris Edmund was there as well. It was, wow. kind, of a, yeah, yeah. It was kind of a weird, horny two-farty. Yeah. Now, he was someone everyone got, so... 
Yeah, I was just going to ask. I was just going to mention his name because I was thinking like mm. living down there. Well, he know, lived like, there, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I, and Cilla McQueen is another yeah, one, right, yeah, and yeah. she is fantastic, man. Yeah. If you see Cilla McQueen read her poems, you, it's honestly the words form like crystal in the air. Wow, she is an amazing reader, yeah, and a lovely person with it, mm. and a terrific poet. So I read, I read her stuff backwards, and mm. uh, yeah, I really, really uh, just Peter Olds. Yeah, he was another huge influence in the fact that, um, yeah, the poem could record things that were reasonably mundane, but mm. they, but if they were written in an interesting fashion, you would read them, and they were great because they were like a um, a, a diary entry with yeah. with rhythm. Now you mention like that. Now you mention him in that context. I can see how you would. Yeah. You know, I can see a connection between his work and yours, how you would well, take something from... Well, he makes it available. Yes, yeah. He, he, he's saying, this is not a highfalutin thing. No. This is a thing that is accessible to you um, if you just w- sit here and read it. Mm. And I've read Peter's work, you know, I read a Dr. Rock very early, 72. I, mm. I read, uh, gosh, what's his really wonderful book? Bugger, I can't remember. So I didn't think I was going to talk about Peter, but <laughs> he wrote, um, oh, shivers. Just, well, anyway, anything. The mid-period of Peter blew me away. Um, just so skillful, so great. Mm. You know, he kind of had a little bit of the beats, but he also had the discipline of traditional poets. And I loved him for that. He mm. had more expansive poets. Um and he would have more expansive lines, but he'd have also quite that's tight that, lines. That's that New Zealand thing of that time too, of being equally influenced by America and England. Mm. You know, I think like yeah. you know, and so the the American poetry that was exciting and spoke to a lot of people was the beats because it, yes. it registered through the music. Yes, but then having that kind of colonial tie to England yeah. and reading those more again academic see, he, disciplines. He was a person. Mm. It, and he was a person who'd read. You could tell yeah. he'd read tons because yeah. he did it in his own way. But he knew the forms. So you were absorbing all this stuff. But when do you try your hand at it? Well, or had you because no, you hadn't grown up doing it. No, it not was at after all. After you discovered it as a reader. Yeah, yeah. It's what it could do. Um, yeah. yeah, what poetry could do that. that, that it, so you're obviously feeling. It was some... at the ODT. It was at the Otago Daily Times. I. I must have started writing about that time because I remember what I had a poem published in the critic, the Otago University yeah. student mag, um, and it, called, it was called "A Dead Dolphin Writes Home," and that was the thing, first thing I had published, I think, and it was from a beach walk. That so was a very New Zealand poem, mm. and it was the uh, imagining a dolphin describing to its forebears what mm. was now on the beach. Mm. Um, so that was um, odd, really. Quite mm. a, a quite an obtuse thing for me to start with, because I'm quite a straight domestic poet in yeah, a way. You know, yeah. don't have great flights of fancy, and that was. But that was the first poem I wrote. A dead dolphin writes home, and I do remember Shane Carter saying, mm, "That's odd," <laughs> you know, and which I'd, is quite some compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he won't remember, of course, but <laughs> but I do remember thinking, yeah, that's kind of odd. But because you know, it's also uh, when you're a journalist and then you have a poem published under yes. your name. Yes, 
that's a thing. Yeah. That's a bit, oh, that, well, you don't do that, do you? That's not for you to do. Poets do that. You, you shouldn't <laughs> yeah, be doing that. Yeah, yeah totally. But of course, there's a, you've got a long tradition of journalist poets. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, James Fenton, the English guys, yeah. good journalist, good yeah. poet. Yeah. There's just, well, tons of them. I mean, yeah. poets have had to make money. Yeah, that's right. Reviewing, Working writing. out how to write or whatever as a way of... Just tons yeah. of them, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's no big deal, really. I mean, Kernow. Yeah. Worked on the Auckland pa- He worked on the Herald, I think, yeah. as a sub. Yeah. Also wrote um, satirical. That's right. Stuff, a whole under another name, uh, like yeah. a, a fake name, yeah. And then he wrote that sort of very disciplined poetry of his. Some yeah. Of it's so beautiful. Yeah. Amazing, beautiful poems. Yeah. Especially the one about the lamb dying. Can't remember what it's called now, but it's gorgeous stuff. You know, because he's regarded as a stuffy old church guy. Yeah, by yeah, some yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, his best poems are just bloody beautiful. So you get something published, obviously. Mm. I know the kind of feeling around that, that there is a visceral sort of hit. And I think there is when you change format, you know, like yeah. I was going to say, like you have obviously found your voice, have some confidence in yourself as a writer by this point because you've done it for, in a way, like you might not have still not found really. your voice, but... Not, not really. I mean, yeah, you. I think you, you, you go on and you, you have different phases where you do write well and then you have phases where you don't write so sure. well. So, but I mean, yeah, it was... What I mean is you're, you're experienced in a sense. You've, you've published... You know, in a few places you've written regularly, you've met deadlines, you know what mm. it is to write. Mm. And so then... Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. True, true. You know, probably the missing part that I haven't talked about is the fact that my blood is is part Lebanese. My mother's English. My father was half Lebanese. So, mm. so there's a line, they're very excitable people. You know, when you see the Palestinians on television, the mothers, when they, one of the their children has been blown up and they mm-hmm. are wailing and it is open. Mm. That's what that's how I grew up in Dunedin with my relatives. They were not people who there was no British stiff upper lip. Right. This was feeling. Yeah. So fear so for me, feeling came before the words. I just had to work out yeah. how to try and locate the feeling with the words. And sometimes I still get that there's too much feeling and the, not the words it's not right right you know that's a that's a a weakness i I know myself people Mm. call it sentimental Mm. and sentimental is when the emotion is too great for the words Mm -hmm. you know um and i that's a balance i'm still trying to pull back from but that 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 was that's a huge influence in my life the Mm. fact that i come from people like that who are not holding back so mm. when i go to a tangi or something and i see maori i go mm, these are my people this is how this is what my mm, people are mm-hmm. like so that's why i relate and mm. i've worked for, in maori television i've worked with a lot mm. of them and i get them i get that emotion which is straight i'm not saying that it's not an anglo-saxon thing yeah, yeah. i'm just saying it's more obvious yes and there's no holding back it's yeah. just pour it out yeah Get it out. It's a Yeah. Give us a poem. Yeah. Give us something. So that I guess that that's where it, that mm-hmm. that feeling thing is. Yeah, what, no, that makes sense. Yeah. What's what really is in, and then you have to try and make that into a thing that is not just mm-hmm. an outburst of emotion. It's shaped into something that might mean something to other people. Mm. So 
let's bring in the sort of broadcasting, TV and radio stuff. Mm. Obviously, again, you know, most people that work in TV or radio, maybe not at this moment, but sort of of your era, certainly, and, and mine too, uh, to a degree, start in print in one way or another, mm. or have a background in print. Mm. So it's not at all unusual. It was a stepping stone. Oh, but yeah. how do you, you know, what what excites you about that, and how do you move towards that? Mm. Well, and when does that happen? Well, it happened in Dunedin mm. in the mid eighties um, when I was the council reporter for the ODT. Basically, the radio um, guy at Radio New Zealand sort of, I don't know, sought me out or. You know, headhunted me. I don't know if that's probably mm. too grand a way of looking at it. But he just said, why don't you work in radio? Why don't you have a go at it? And um, I, I did. I found it very difficult transition mm. to make. Suddenly you're, you're not writing for the page, you're writing for the ear. And mm. that would have also been a contributor, further wakening my ear to language. Mm. And how when something sounds like talk, because that's what you're doing. You're writing talk. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. Mm. between writing for a newspaper and writing for radio mm. you are writing chatter and it's a you have to be as disciplined but it's a different sort of discipline um and so that was that was i actually i actually found it quite intimidating mm. at first you know you would have to read this story and sign off with your name you know i found it quite sort of uh, intimidating but then i guess i got used to it enough to be a reporter mm. so i was a radio reporter i was not a broadcaster mm-hmm. so you know you, you you would voice your 30 second piece or you know so you know it wasn't that dramatic did that figure into helping you find your confidence or voice with poetry then it must have it did yeah. Oh well, I only see that in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Because yeah. it was, it was enough at that time just to get my head around yeah. writing a story mm. of, of thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. Because when you're on a newspaper, you do have, you know, you've got reasonable column inches yeah. to report a council meeting. Well, for radio, you know, you've got thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. So it's a discipline, all discipline, you know. And I love compression of language too, mm-hmm. which is why. I, remember the feathery recesses because <laughs> that's compression you know mm. and giving you an image mm. um and so I, so i did enjoy it eventually mm. but i still wasn't that wild about being a, a a daily journalist i really wanted to do something more creative but all that time i think once i got once i realized i could do that we used to have to we used to have to read the news too you know local breakouts mm-hmm. of news we we would be on the national program reading the local bulletin, mm. you know. So you did learn a lot. Mm. It's kind of cool. Mm. I remember Peter Old saying, "Oh, I heard you on the radio." You know. <laughs> oh, you know, it was it was it was good, but also intimidating because it was very serious. Um, and I and I was hanging out with all my what by then were friends, you know, mm. David Kilgour and Shane and Martin, and they didn't have a conventional job. You know, Shane had tried; he'd worked for the radio station for mm. XO, and he, he had worked. Mm. but you know he didn't want to do it and there was a part of me that didn't want to do it but I had to do it because mm. that's what I did and I was not brave enough to and or good enough I just certainly didn't think to to become a writer so I, I kept going so you're writing poetry and you're mm. um, hanging out with all these musicians yeah did you very inspiring but of you course know, incredibly and- lucky you know to see people make things with out of nothing mm. out of their imagination and their their 
desire to make you feel what they feel. I, I still am amazed by all that. Now you're as connected to them as can be in, in a lot of ways, but did you want to jump the fence and, you know, did you think, oh, well, I can do this? Or did you no. know that was not for you? No, I, no, 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 no. No, I, no. I'm not, not even fleetingly? You didn't have a sort of moment of... No, I just didn't. Just I knew, I sort of knew... I, I had a foot in both camps. Mm. In my, you know, journalism paid money. Mm-mm. And that was, you know, my and once you, I was going to say, once you get used to that too, like, you know, it's yeah. a bit different if you, it's a bit different if you uh, start off without that. But once you are accustomed to a working way, it's, yeah. a, lot easy, it's a lot easier to stay within that, isn't it? Yeah. And, and then I, I got lucky. Someone said to me that I should, uh, when I was in, in Dunedin, you know, I, I did various things, piddled about, wrote a lot. I did write a lot of stuff and piddled about. Uh, and then I got a, you know, I got a chance to work for TV3 for the news, mm. and I sort of auditioned. I, I remember <laughs> I had, I didn't even have a a jacket, you know. I didn't <laughs> own a jacket. I didn't mm. own a suit. Mm. I didn't own. You didn't have to have that as a newspaper reporter. <laughs> and I remember going to the Sally Armies and buying a jacket, <laughs> and a, and it was so shit. I had to. <laughs> use sellotape to tape up the lining so it didn't fall down <laughs> but and so I did this audition I thought well nothing will come of that well you know Mark Jennings came down to Dunedin and offered me a job and I sort of thought well you know I no, I did a, I, yeah he offered me a trial and so I so I went ahead and did it. And one of the first stories I did was on Daniel Loder. In fact, the first story I did was on Daniel Loder. Wow. So that was a bit of a break, you know. Yeah. And that came back in a good way. Uh, four years later, I went to the Atlanta Olympics when he won those medals. Hmm. And it was amazing. And he, he was one of the few people that... He, he, he actually... He trusted me. Mm-hmm. And he talked to me. Other reporters, he was... Well, you know what he was like. He mm-hmm. was not comfortable in that yeah media. yeah yeah but with me he was fine oh you're from Dunedin you're the guy who knows I eat 12 wheat bags for breakfast because I told you in that interview I did yeah. you know so there was a rapport and that was kind of helpful yeah, yeah. So you get little breaks like that so yeah. you know I, I, I did prosper in television news I loved it I yeah. really loved it it really reinvigorated me it was exciting yeah you were using this camera to tell a story completely different you were not in charge of anything you had to have a relationship with the camera person and you had to figure out what your story was and you had to go and film it. They call it the 10-ton pencil for mm. a good reason. Mm. It's cumbersome. It's awkward. It's not like picking up the phone and going live on the radio. Mm. You've got to get there. You've got to get the pictures. You, you know, it's, it's, it's... But once you get it, once you've got it, yeah, it's, it's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... And, you know, I did love the gotcha moment too, you know, where you're investigating someone and you know they've been bad and you are going to get the chance to ask them the questions in the mm. doorway. Mm. I have to say that. Yeah, it was fantastic. I had a great, great 20 years at TV3. Just the best, you know. Went mm. to East Timor, nearly got shot. Reported on all sorts of stuff. Just fantastic. Mm. Oh, you know, I shouldn't have gone to East Timor. It was dumb. And a pair of jandals and a T-shirt. <laughs> it was about the dumbest thing I've ever done. You sound like Chris Knox's roadie. <laughs> oh, well. God. <laughs> anyway that was a you know um it was a great experience yeah yeah that taught me that i guess i didn't really want to admit this but i guess that made me realize that if i had been shot and died in east timor it wouldn't have made any difference to the world and my telling the story wouldn't have made any difference to the world 
and it kind of did blunt 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 my naivety and innocence mm. in a way and I slightly crossed it over with a bit of cynicism and I try to avoid that you know it's one of the things I admire about John Campbell he just doesn't allow himself to become cynical mm. and I think that's a great thing because you you shouldn't be cynical you shouldn't not when you're trying to do a job where you do call people into account and have a chance to say to really put difficult questions to people who should be asked difficult questions yes if you want people to be honest with you and open with you and sincere with you then you're well, you mo know, modeling that behavior yeah, in a way too there's part that part as well well right? no i mean it, you know there is just a fundamental importance to journalism that's never can be understated mm -hmm. i mean i just watched the doco on how volkswagen mm. got away with lying about their diesel and saying it was clean now you know, that's just fantastic journalism slash television to mm. tell that story mm. and to tell the story of um, how Trump went bankrupt with kind of loony ideas with casinos. People need to know these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. that guy could not get a bank loan in 2005 in the United States. And mm. that's how he ended up getting Russian money and getting involved with people in Kazakhstan, people who were gangsters. People need to know that about Trump. They need to mm. know people's pedigree, you know? Mm. Mark Smith, Marky Smith from The Fall, sings a fantastic line. And I think he means it in relation to himself and his, and his, and his music and all was done. He's check the guy's track record, check the guy's track track record. It's on one of his hit songs, mm -hmm. you know? Check the record, check the record, check the guy's track record, check the record, check the guy's track record. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a mantra for around times. Check the guy's track record. It's a great line. Mm. Easy line, but a great line. Mm. Mm. And I think, yeah. Check. And journalism's always got to check the guy's or girl's track record, you know. Now, you're still involved in journalism. You're um, working as a... What, director for Country Calendar? Yeah, it's a, different. That's different, but it's, it is connected to journalism. It is, it's storytelling. Yeah, it's storytelling. And, and you, I love it. And, you you know, you possibly, what gets you the job is that background, obviously all the different things you've done. Um, you also, you've filled in a couple of times for Kim Hill recently. Mm. You've done things like that. Well, I mean, well, there's a few things I want to splinter <laughs> off to here. Let's, let, what's it like sitting in Kim Hill's chair <laughs> when she's not there and you know what's the way to expect I know you do I've heard you do it I know you no one can do the show like her but yeah. what what does it feel like preparing for a show that is you know people call it the Kim Hill show mm. for a reason it's yes. her show oh, so it's her show. you're not just doing Saturday morning on RNZ you are doing Kim Hill show no. and, and yet you're yes. never going to do her show no, no. you're going to do the Richard Langston version of her show but how yeah. do you feel about that well initially it was just uh, I found it overwhelming yeah and you know it would have I did a lesser job than I probably should have I was too nervous too thinking exactly the way you're thinking yeah and it's really interesting and I I've only done her show a couple of times actually mm. this year, mm. but I did Chris Laidlaw's show and the same thing, you know, that yeah, he's yeah, a well, very another, yeah, yeah. smart guy, Rhodes Scholar, etc., all black, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I was a little more comfortable doing his show because I, I, I don't know, I just did it a bit more, so mm -hmm. I kind of got a bit more of a handle. Yeah, got that, yeah. Got a handle on it. But it wasn't really, I never felt comfortable on radio in the times that I did those shows until I did a show with Brian Crump 
And Brian, it was actually about Dunedin music. Mm -hmm. It was before the um, Silver Scrolls mm -hmm. last year. And um, I sort of wrote a show based on what I would, a, a tour of Dunedin mm -hmm. and played music. But what I, the, the important thing for me as someone trying to be a broadcaster was I watched Brian. And you see, he was just amazingly relaxed. Mm -hmm. And he didn't feel the need to... F so, he, you know, so the news would finish. And then I'm thinking, well, shit. Well, actually, Brian read it that night. So maybe the promo had finished after Brian had read the news. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, he's going to rip into it now. And he sort of just turned the mic on and sort of just started. Mm. In his own good time. Mm. In his own good time. And I thought, wow. That's a really great lesson, because he's more my persona. He's a bit late. He's laid back, mm. you know, and he's curious and enthusiastic. And I thought, right, okay, I'm I'm not Kim Hill, I'm not Chris Laidlaw, but I'm probably closer to Brian Crump. Mm -hmm. And I just have felt enormously comfortable since then, and been more myself. So, because it's it was mm. it was just. It was just bloody awful thinking. Yeah. I'm filling in for Kim. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not. And so yeah. I had to stop that. Mm -mm. You know. And I, but but I do have other strengths. You know. I mean, you know, music, poetry, and I got to play to those. Mm. That's my thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can all. I've, I've done current affairs. I know how to interview. Yeah, people. yeah, yeah. I know yeah. how to interview people like a really tough bastard. But I, I I'm not really into that now. Yeah. I'm. You know. I just. You know, I've been there, I did that, going at people like a Rottweiler, I've done it. And it doesn't give me a thrill. Mm. Unless someone's just being, unless someone is just lying. Yeah, asking for it. Then I'm, Basically. you know, no quarter given. Yeah. But that's not that's not what I want to do now. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, enthusiasm's, you know, that's where I'm at now, trying to be enthusiastic about things. And so I'm thinking, like, when you talk about, and you say, you know, John Campbell's a... a a great mentor role model around mm. the around the um, not being cynical thing. Mm. I'm thinking like you can't you can't turn up to country calendar with cynicism. Oh no, no, not at all. I mean, but you no, wouldn't. A, no, no, that's what I mean. That's a great example of a show where you get to um, enjoy mm. a cynicism free zone. It you know? is, and, yeah. and, and that's why I, I, yeah. I went. I knew that. I knew that that's at a point where I had burnout. Mm. That was that was the television. You know, that's, it's where old it's where old current affairs reporters go out to pasture, <laughs> and it's mm. true. That's what Julian O'Brien, the program boss, says, and, you, and it's and it's so true because mm. we have all the skills of storytelling yes. and and rigor, and and you know, hopefully, teasing the story out of people, mm. getting alongside them earning mm. their trust and mm. then telling their story and you have the bonus of the landscape <laughs> I'm such a sporadic TV watcher when it comes to you know anything that's not mm -hmm. streamed um, but I've got to admit like particularly over the last few years Country Calendar is one of those great shows that pulls you in I need yes. it for me it's not appointment viewing but I'll walk into it if it's you know it's usually started yeah or I'll see the ad that it's about to start and mm. I'll sit down and it will hook me in because and I, you know, and I was talking about this with someone the other day um, about how, you know, as a kid, obviously it's not a show. Well, it's not really a show designed for kids. So I have this memory. Oh no, I know but it, it is. Kids well, love it. I have this memory growing up 
not enjoying it as a kid like, right. like to me oh okay uh, what i mean yes. is ba- oh, yeah. you know back then yeah its placement was something the adults watched and therefore yes. it was boring yeah uh that's true and so now it's funny you know now my my son would have the same reaction he yeah if he watched it mm. when i was watching it he would go why are we watching this, this yes is boring. there's a lot of sheep moving why yeah. why are well, we watching who that who cares <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but it does it really you know we've really enjoyed watching it over the last few years like uh, it's pulled me right into because it's that thing, storytelling, and it's, and it's, um, there's a lovely, yeah, there's these lovely vistas, and, mm. and this feeling that you are connecting with real people, yes, because TV is obviously full of fake people, it's full of characters, like designed characters, it, yeah. as a medium, it's full of a lot of, well, it's full of, you know, um, invented nonsense, yes, that's yeah, exactly, you know, contrived, contrived, it's yeah. full of contrivances, mm-hmm. well, there is nothing, no, it's go out. It's so wonderful mm. to go out, meet the people, and portray them as they are, mm-hmm. and make a still a, a fantastically interesting piece of television. And that's what that's what it is. That's all it is. Go out, meet them, work their story out, go back and film it. That's what we do. And it's just, I mean, like, mm. and you have great experiences on the way mm-hmm. playing the Gordons Machine yeah. Song and the landscape. <laughs> Well, your your um, Facebook posts about it are like a, a form of very nice photojournalism to me. Mm. You know, I follow those right. and think, well, I'd well, like it's just to... an iPhone, but yeah, yeah. But I think I just think I just mean in terms of putting you in a place and, yes. and, well, create, what, and creating what, an expectation. That's I look what forward country, to seeing that translate. Yes, you know, that's what Country Calendar does. It mm. puts you there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, look, sometimes the stories are pretty thin, mm. but it's about being there. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about getting up and seeing the sunrise, mm. and 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 it's it is the shadows and the hills. Well, it's that awareness too of knowing, like we can't, you know, not I'm not attempting a pun here, but we can't milk this for any longer than you know the story about cows that's the right. sheep deserves. It's, that's right. It's here for this, and then we'll find something else that's bigger yes. to fill out the show. I always think, you know, you know, you're always told as a journalist, think of the person you're telling the story to. And mm-hmm. in radio, you're always saying, now, who, you're just telling this to your auntie. That's how they used to tell you not to think. You're speaking to 100,000 people. Mm. You're speaking to your auntie. Tell her what happened, you know. And with Country Calendar, I always think, I'm making this program for someone who can no longer get outside. I'm making this for people who, for some reason, are stuck inside. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring the country to them. And then that's that's how I think about it. Mm. That's how I think about what. No matter the story, I just think that's what I want to do. I want to. I've just filmed. A, we, I've just directed a, a person filming a story in Blenheim on an orchard, and the sun coming through the trees and the plums ripening. I want you to get that. I want you to want to reach into the tally and pick mm. the plum. Yeah, yeah. Because it's that great. Yeah. It's the the just the light gorgeousness mm. you know that's 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 the pleasure of making the damn thing and when that's happening i'm just standing behind the camera watching just thinking jesus you, we're printing money here mm. for what we're doing you know it's mm. just mm. and that's that that's what i mean you know that's when i'm the writer at rest you, mm. television the camera does so much work for you it's just glorious <laughs> so when do you plan to come back out of this relative hiding of, of 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 not writing but being the writer at rest and working through radio and TV. Oh, you, well, I'm, no, I'm, or st- you, I'm uh, always writing. Yeah, something. no, I mean, I always get, writing notes. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Always thinking. No, right. I get that that's a component of that, but what I mean is, 
Oh, what, what, presenting? Uh, pre- yeah, there will also, like, no. are there more poems to come from you? Uh, you know, do you want to write a, do you want to, yeah. I, know, I know you've encapsulated bits of your life through the poems, but do you want to write a memoir or book of essays about the, you did the newspaper poems, but will you mm. do the essays about the newspaper life or the no. correspondent life? No, no, probably not. No. No, I, I, no I, I'd want to keep writing about what's happening now. Mm-hmm. in the poems more than rather than looking, looking back, back. Yeah. I did that you know you, yeah, yeah. you did that and that's that I did I did because those characters and, and some of them you know um, some of them I, I, I feel I did actually start to think about a novel mm. and then I just thought nah well that I mean that book uh, we're talking about your newspaper poems mm. that book to me, yeah, it's like notes for a novel, isn't it? Like, well, it is in a way. In I, a way. I think about, you know, all these people, um, and there are bits of people in here and mm-hmm. pure invention. and. Mm. Um, but can I read? Can oh, I, yeah, I, what, what happened? If you don't do it, I'm going to ask you to. So, yeah. like, it's nice that you've arrived at it without me having to say, now um, read some poems. The yeah. first poem that... Because I never thought... This is my third book, so mm-hmm. I've written the first one, Boy, which is pretty autobiographical really and then Henry comes see the blue which I really that's one of my well mm. if you can if you're allowed to be so grand as to have a favorite book I, mm. I, I really love that book just something happened mm. I think the first one I you know I've been hanging on to those poems for a long time yeah. and you know it, there's poems in there I wouldn't I would you know edit and no and poems I wouldn't Put in there, but this one up came in a in a rush after the first book, and it, <laughs> bands always have trouble with the second album. Yeah, yeah, it's the I opposite. Not, yeah, it's the yeah, opposite. Yeah, I yeah. did not have trouble with the second yeah, book. Yeah, and then then so I had a momentum built up, and and um and uh and then I I, I don't know I, I I the people who published me Nigel Beckford and Mike, Mike Fitzsimmons yeah. were very encouraging. And um, I, just one day, I, I just wrote this poem called "The Horse Racing Reporters," you know, because they're such evocative characters on a on a newspaper. Because especially in, the, in those days, they were they, they were not trained as journalists. They would have been people who were nuts about horses, and they mm. kind of learned to write, you know. And they were characters. They were not uh, university educated kind of people these were you know mm. these were public bar people and um i just thought they were such great characters and and that was the first poem of this book um that i wrote and i'm just sorry i'm just try, trying to look for the page again of but the, so and it, and it came in a rush you know and um it, it was um just a joy to write and I, and I and I and I really loved it some I not many poems that you write and you think oh that that was that was good I I just had such fun writing the mm. damn thing and remembering these people and so it's called the horse racing reporters raincoated soiled patting themselves down for a smoke roped off at the bar they look like a doping scandal furtive and ready to yield a tip-off to save themselves. They know the rules, a step, out of, a step out of line, and your shoe squelches in horse shit. They have a black phone for special calls. Nags, who can trust them? Favourites break up on the bend. Long odds bolt home. The flash on the line. All tickets thrown to the wind. 
the harried shadow under the grandstand running for the phone. Mm. And I just love writing that poem. Mm. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that's true, actually. That's exactly how it was. They were mm. always, you always got a sense with the horse racing reporters that they were in on it. They were in mm. on some mm. scam. They were planning a scam. They were getting a tip off and and they were all furtive. Yes. They did look furtive. Yeah. That was a time of, you know, it was a male-oriented time in the newsroom, but there were very strong women coming through too at that time. Well, you were talking about the um, sports reporting being an example of observe and report, but that's poetry too, isn't it? Like, yeah. Po- you know, that in, a, in, in some sort of nutshell, that's poetry. Certainly certainly the poems in, in this book of yours, yeah. that's exactly what that is, is, is observe and report. Yes, it is. It, it, it is. I, and that poetry is a form of reportage. Well, well, it is. I mean, you think of the First World War poets, mm. uh, and you know, uh, and that that's, that is fantastic poetry. Yeah, reportage as poetry. Wilfred Owen and all yeah. those people. The, that is what it was. Mm-hmm. That was news. Mm. You know, what does Ezra Pound say? Poetry is news that stays news. Well, that was news reported from the front line in 1914, 15, 16, mm. 17, and it has stayed news. Mm. Those poems have probably become more famous now than they ever were mm-hmm. in Wilfred Owen's lifetime. Mm. Amazing poets. And, mm. and, you know, David, there have been there are minor poets who are still being discovered who wrote fantastic mm. poetry during wartime. And reportage has all, had always been a part of... Um, mm poetry but, but probably became less so with you know radio and television and so forth and, mm-hmm. and the news yeah, was new always mediums for reporting yeah, yeah, there, yeah there were different ways to do it but you know i still think that's um yeah poetry sort of disappeared into the into the university well, to well, survive it, didn't yeah it? <laughs> well it, well, it, well, it, well it, never entirely because i yeah. mean there's always yeah, been yeah. poets like bukowski and yeah, so sure, forth who sure. who have written yeah. so that everybody could yeah, read yeah. it yeah but yes, that's an element of it. it, yeah. it but it's, it's a funny thing, you know, poetry seems like an extravagance, but when, when, when it really counts, it's a necessity. Mm. Funerals, weddings, mm-hmm. celebrations. Someone wants to hear some great words mm. or some good, memorable words, you know. Mm, mm. They don't read an essay at a wedding for a very good reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, get cut to the chase, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have something that resonates, that means something. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, brevity and, and yes. you know, being concise. I, I remember yeah. I read um, at John Campbell's wedding, I read um, William Carlos Williams' The Ivy Crown. And if you haven't read that poem, that is a poem to read, you know. It's just an amazing poem. William Carlos Williams is kind of regarded as kind of an experimental guy, you know, who wrote mm, the poem mm. about plums. And, yeah, yeah, and the red and velvet. Well yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, he wrote a poem called The Ivy Crown, and it's just an amazing poem about the pain of being in love. Mm. And, and, and it's just beautiful, incredible poem. Mm. So, yeah, this, I mean, and that's the thing, you know, I, I don't know, it's a late convert to poetry I suppose I'm more enthusiastic than people who had it at university yeah right yeah because yeah. that's not how I consume I, it was like I found a secret <laughs> yeah 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 you no found one else it can yeah, I yeah. found this thing yeah holy shit look mm. what it does mm. it, it it compresses it makes words move it wobbles your mind it mm. bloody opens you up it splits mm. you like a nut I mean it's just the most powerful shit gel ignite and pages you know really mm. That's what it was like. I mean, I always loved, 
horny Tufari because he simply, um, you know, was a great amalgam of high English and yes. Maori vernacular. Yes. And it was just so attractive that yeah, someone yeah. could do that in a line, you know. Yeah. Anyone could and, get that. And the, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the blue collar kind of, you know, work attitude and, and experience he had. I'll read another one actually yeah. from the newspaper poems because, uh, as I say, a lot of these poems are pure invention. But this one, I'm, I guess, I'm, there's part of me in this poem that that the shipping reporter who goes to the Otago Harbour and sees these ships and talks to people, mm. and you know, is I wanted to travel, I guess, and my father had been a merchant seaman. I'm only thinking this in retrospect because when I wrote the mm. poem, I didn't really think about it mm. like that but it's you know it's whatever it is 10 years or something since i wrote it and the shipping reporter the beginner stumbles among the keys of the giant gray typewriter mishits the silver arm sits behind the chief frets is it okay to use got a wind buffets his ears got is fine boy Notes, arrivals, departures, ships moving within the exactness of watch hands, streaming down through the blue heat of the Pacific, pitching in the grey roll of the Tasman. Foghorns, gulls, bilge. He strolls on the wide world of the wharf. Banana boats, Russian seamen, American sailors. He dreams sailing out through the heads under the huge span of a bird's wing, disappearing over the horizon, his reverie cut by the call of the office, his return weighs like an anchor. Got is fine boy. So that's a character who has dreams of traveling mm -hmm. and is called in by, by the reality of the everyday. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, and that that kind of captures an element of I think of my personality that I'm yeah, really just, lost. Yeah, you know. I was gonna say that's you, like big part of you in that. And um, so actually, North and South published the um this poem, which is kind of it's kind of a a foreword to it, really, saying mm. kind of why I wrote the um, poems. Um, and um, it was the last poem I wrote. Regard this as a bouquet to ink, to the urgent daily way it was set into paper, to convey, to bind us with the community of the word, to the reporter's belief in the necessity to tell, to the reprobate, the romantic and the hard-nosed fools, to that newsroom of empty desk, desks and the dust, to the calm that now rests over their hammering fingers, to the men and women who fill early afternoon deadlines, to the long-gone street corner boy who called their tune, read all about it, to what stood and is now past. Look, return to then, the morning brightness, the parade of reporters entering the newsroom, the trench coat dreamers, high-booted glamour girls, tabloid kneecappers, the storytellers and the story breakers as they resume their daily beginnings. That's what it was like when mm. 8 o'clock on an afternoon newspaper, 8 o'clock in the morning, and people would start arriving to work and it would just start, you know, mm. until the printing press rolled it. The first edition, early edition, rolled at 1 o'clock and then the late edition, it 
two o'clock. Mm. So exciting. Stop press, you know, if there was an accident. I remember lions escaping in Lawrence once and from a circus. That was just like tabloid heaven, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. to an afternoon newspaper. Lions loose in Lawrence. Yeah. I always remember the headline. <laughs> you know, it was amazingly exciting when yeah. you're 17 years old and you're just out of school. Mm. And you, you, do, you meet these people. I, I stay with you. I was going to say these these poems tell or told me uh, enough that you missed it, but um, and miss it, but you mm. know you clearly do. Um, or that aspect of it, like that, as you say. And and so, what what are your thoughts around? You know, you as I say, you're still involved in in media and content mm. creation. But what are your thoughts around? You know, newspapers and and website material that arrives daily for people to read now uh, you know how connected are you to that and what do you think it's you know because this you know that issue of north and south sitting over there mm. I, I i read some of that the other day and mm. it was just wonderful you know and i haven't haven't read the whole issue for a while but mm. there's two amazing stories in there yeah and both of them made me go and i and i will read more of it but both of them made me go you know, it's out. It's out there, mm. and even in New Zealand, it's out there if we want to find it. Yes. Well, well, because I read, because I had to read the newspaper and follow the media yeah. slavishly for thirty odd years. Yeah. I now don't. Yeah. Right. I, I because so you don't miss that aspect. <laughs> no, I don't miss yeah. that aspect. But I do read lots and lots of long form mm-hmm. stuff. I, yeah. You know, I read North and South. I read. You know, mm. I, I, I read The Economist. Mm-hmm. I read, you know, uh, I just read everywhere. And I read lots of, I mean, God, it, you know, you, we've never lived in a better time. You can read The Guardian. Mm-hmm. You, you you can read yeah, yeah, The yeah. New Yorker. Yeah. If you're a reader, you you, you never, and, I, and I'm loath to say this because I wouldn't want to put any of my colleagues out of business, but you never have to buy another magazine mm-hmm. I mean, it's tragic. You yes. have to buy another record if you don't yeah, want it. Yeah, 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 totally. You know, so, uh, you know, if, if I hear a great song and I listen to it a hundred times on Spotify, I will go and buy that song <laughs> because that that person has given me so much pleasure. They deserve mm. something other than a, you know, a $6 check from mm. Spotify. You know, you know, I had the weirdest moment once. I, I was talking to a musician friend who got a check from Spotify, or I think it was Spotify, for like 60 cents or something. Well, I just got $90 for three poems, so it, it looked like a windfall. And yeah. I mean, that, that is a, a nonsense, of course, yeah. $90, you yes. know, it's hope, hopeless. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, you know, I thought, oh, this is just wrong, you <laughs> yes. know. Someone's bit song has been listened to, you know, maybe two or three thousand times and they've got mm. 60 cents or whatever. Yeah. It's just criminal, you know, that the wrong people are in charge of music. Yes. And it's such an irony to say that because, you know, the story's a legend of musicians complaining about the music industry. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For 30 years, you know. Yeah. You, the fights, Tom Petty, everyone dealt, everyone's had fights yeah. with record companies. But you kind of have a soft spot for them without realising yeah, 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 yeah. that there were they, there was an element of protection. Well, there were people actually in record companies who loved records, yeah. who loved music. Yeah, you know there were legendary figures, you know, um, who who headed record labels, like the guy who discovered Dylan, you know, Hammond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not discovered him, but you know, yeah, yeah, made the, sure that he was recorded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. the guy actually loved music. Well, yes. what is what is Spotify's relation to music? Mm, mm. Nothing. Zip. 
So you know, yeah, it's yeah. not. It's it's not a rhythm replaced by algorithm. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You, know, you know, I find that offensive. Yeah, actually, and and it takes all the joy out of discovering. Well, what about music journalism for you? I mean, it, you know, you obviously would have. You know, I mean, you're a participant in it, and 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 a, a, as a reader and a, and as a creator, um, has that disappeared for you? Or there's still, or do you still follow? Music journalism in any oh, way? Oh, yeah, that, no, yeah. I, I love, yeah. Because I, I, again, I, oh, look, I, I, I look, I mean, well, call it journalism, I, all sorts. I've just read this book by this New Zealand guy who's now at Yale. Oh, yeah. And is, how good the, is that? I, oh, read I, it I loved it. Why yeah. Dylan Matters? Because yeah, yeah, I it takes you, it connects Dylan back to mm. Ovid and mm. the Roman poets, the Greek poets, or Catullus, the Roman poet. I listened to the interview yeah. with him when, yes, on, the Kim Rich, Hill did on the Richard Langston show when Kim Hill was hosting. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah well, look, shit, I'd love to have interviewed this guy, but yeah. you know, like, like Robert Forster, I would have probably been too well researched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I really enjoyed reading this book. Yeah, and I guess yeah. that's like Nerd 101, isn't it? Yeah, reading. yeah. But, but I loved it. And mm. it made me go back. And the weirdest thing, because... I've never really been a fan of those early Dylan folk records. Right. You know, just because they're so omnipresent. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like you cannot re- you cannot discover them again. They have been discovered mm-hmm. a zillion times, so it's impossible to get them fresh. Well, I read this guy's book, and they were fresh again. And I was really interested. Mm-hmm. The freewheeling Bob Dylan, Spanish Boots. He's fantastic on that song. Right. And yeah. This, you know. I love the freewheeling. I think it's. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of again, my favourites. Again. But I'm sort of like you. Those overall, those early albums, I can skip now. But that one, I've got a connection to. I think. Well, when yeah. you read this book, yeah. you, you you really he does reignite or ignite mm. a real enthusiasm for. That work, and I'm really, I'll be fascinated now to read Su- Susie Rotolo's oh, memoir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Yeah, well, no, so, I know about so, it, but, so he's yeah. quite good. He's not gossipy at all, mm-hmm. but he, he knows a lot. Mm. And he's obviously read her memoir, mm. and so he's read everything there is to mm. read, and mm. he, and he's just splices it all in, in a, in a, so it, it's always interesting. Mm. It's never dull. Mm. I've read Christopher Rick's book too on Bob Dylan's lyrics, mm. you know, mm. the prosody and, you know, the metrics of it. And that, mm. I love that too. Oh, I'm a, um, so I'm a bit I'm, of a nerd. I, yeah, I'm a bit of a nerd on Dylan books. Like, I haven't read all of them, but I'm, I'm aware of most of them and, and I track them, you know, like, I'm going to get, I'm going to try and get through them, which is yeah. kind of ridiculous. Well, I want to read that Clinton Halen one. I think that's Oh, the Behind the Shade. Yeah. Have you read that? It's the very first one I read. Right. I haven't read the updated one, right. but that's the first. Well, he gives it. He, this guy likes that book. I like that book. That was the first, not only the first Dylan book I read. It was one of the very first music biographies I read. Yeah. So, you know, that's quite special to me. Yeah. And then, I, in fact, I've just found. Um, I'll show. I'll show you this later because. Mm. But I've just found. Um, a research project I did when I was at high school where, right. I, where I basically just rip off that book. Right. You know, I'd take, I'd take pictures of it, Great. T- take pictures from it, and I've kind of tried to summarise it. As, you know, I'm so about you had, 15. You, you so. had the habit early. Yeah, no, yeah. No, I didn't have a habit that bad. It's... <coughs> yeah, no, no, I did. I, um, <coughs> Excuse me. I think it kicked in for me. At, um, I think I noticed it when I was at a sort of intermediate and I cared about mm. music far more than anyone else I was at school with well that's how it seemed it might not be the case but I, and I was certainly more 
outward about it, you know, writing the bands on the pencil cases and the books and stuff. And all my all the bands I wrote about with actually things those kids' parents, you know, mostly still listen to. So that's where I recognised, oh, this is a bit... One of my favourite Fan Dylan stories is, is told by Robert Forster from the Go-Betweens. Mm. Dylan gave an interview, you know, you imagine back then, you didn't see that many interviews with Dylan. It mm. wasn't like mm. they were all posted everywhere. You mm. had to go and buy the specific publication, mm. probably Rolling Stone. But he gave an interview to Playboy, and it must have been in, oh, 78, 79, somewhere mm. around there. <coughs> well, the go-betweens being in Queensland, you couldn't buy Playboy. Mm. Not legitimately, anyway, mm. in a shop. Mm. So they had to drive across the border to New South Wales to get a copy. <laughs> so they did, and they read it. You know, it was on it was on their road trip to Sydney mm, to mm. record, uh, you know, one of the early singles. Yeah. And I just love that story. They yeah, were so yeah. obsessed. They had to leave early to get the Playboy to see what Dylan had said. And I think that might be where he... No, it probably wasn't. It's really later, but he described his sound as that wild mercury sound. Mm, mm. And the go-betweens kind of ripped that off. Mm. And what do they call there? The stripped sun sunlight sound or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dylan That's off. right. They've got that live album and DVD from right now. Yeah, that's, that's right. Like, yeah, which is wonderful. Yeah. You know, I saw the last Go Between show ever. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Where? In day. Sydney. Oh, what? Eighty nine. No, no, no. The re- when the, oh, the, oh. the very last one. Oh, like, wow. Like, yeah. Shit. Yeah. I'm like, could you? <laughs> on my well. <laughs> I was lucky my wife didn't because it was on our, on our honeymoon. Holy shit! <laughs> so, I think that's permissible. Yeah. Well, we were we were we were actually we were um, honeymoon was up in the Sunshine Coast, and then we went down to Sydney for a few days, kind of afterwards to yeah. sort of reconnect with people that like um, my. Um, best man and her sister who's a bridesmaid were both living in Sydney and stuff so we went back there and it was right when the Sydney festival was on and I said to my mate can you get me some tickets and we were flying out when Elvis Costello was playing and I was kind of bummed about that so I was like oh so that must have been what 2005 2006 2006? No, 2006. Because he died in 2006. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was like months. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was months before that. And I, because I met Robert when he was over, when you talked to him. Right. I told him that. I said, I've only just, it was only reading his book that made me realise it was pretty much, it was the last public performance. And I think they did like a corporate type thing after that. Yes. No, they did a gig in someone's garden. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He's talked about it in the book, right? Yeah. So. I said to him, oh, you know, I was actually at your last you know, Sydney show, I was at your last game. He's like, oh, wow, was, you know, which was quite cool. But yeah, yeah it was only his. It was a really amazing thing to be at. It, you yeah. know, it felt cool at the time, but then obviously it became a lot more. Yeah. Uh, you know, afterwards, but yeah. yeah. Well, they made a lot of great records, and again, they're one of those bands that the people who love them love them mm. irrationally. Mm-mm. And the people who just. It's funny, I, my nephew lives in Brisbane and they kind of know, it's kind of all a family joke, yeah. obsession with the go-betweens. Uh, they're just completely, why would you even care about these people? Yeah. That, that's, you know, that's not very good, is it? <laughs> it's, it is funny to think about, like, because, yeah, you're right, every go-betweens fan you meet yeah. is, is mad for them. Yeah, mad and, for them. It's illogically and, mad. Yeah. You know, I, I've got a theory about why that is. It's because their songs are like letters to mm. the people who've been listening to them. Now, I, I was on Kim Hill 
playing favourites one time years ago mm. when I when my first book came out, Boy, and um, I played um, Catelyn Kane, and she said to me, "Oh, it's kind of, it's kind of like Paul Kelly, isn't it?" Mm. And I didn't have time to tell her why it was nothing like why it was, like, no. <laughs> why it was nothing like Paul Kelly. Yeah, because, but, but I've got time to tell you now. Yeah. Because Paul Kelly writes in characters, he writes mm-hmm. in archetypes. So he'll write a song about a, a guy whose life's gone wrong, mm. who's a, who who was a truck driver or something, mm. and now he's, he's taking a taxi mm. ride to Diamonds her daughter. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. So he he's a classic character writer. Yes. The go betweens the only character in their songs is them and, yeah. and the lover, and so you know that, mm. and they're letters. Mm. So Catelyn Kane is Grant telling you this is how I grew up and this is how I see it now. Mm-mm. And the most important line in Catelyn Kane is his father's watch he left it in the showers. It's the only line that doesn't rhyme. And I only know that because Grant pointed it out to me once. Mm. I said, fuck that song's amazing, what is it? He said, well there's a line in there that doesn't rhyme. I don't I think that was too subtle for me at the time to get, mm. but, but I've never forgotten him telling me that. Mm. I just remembered as a writer, oh that's a good thing to do. Mm. You know. Anyway, um, and that's all their songs. Like you, you hear um, Robert write "Spring Rain," and that's Robert's song about growing up. You know, because all childhood, mm. and and it's a and he's telling you, I wasn't really interested in cars. I wanted surprises. I wanted things like "Spring Rain." You know? And so they're very personal. And they, if you listen to them enough, they burn into you. You know. Because for the reason that they're intensely personal. Have you watched the doco yet? Yeah. And uh, of course you have. It's fantastic. But isn't it great? But also, I was, when you were starting talking about that, I was thinking, isn't it? It's great that Catelyn Kane is the song that stopped Paul Kelly in his tracks yeah. too. Like that's, that's, that's a magic. A, yeah, yeah, that's a guy great makes, moment. The guy makes one appearance in that. Yes, and it's and it's perfect because yes. that's the guy who tells you what it was for yeah. the, 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 the other 15 people who that song did the yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think, thank you. Yeah. Because it is, it was so weird. Yeah. You know, it was so odd. I got um, a plate on John Peel's show actually when I was in London and I, I asked for it. Because mm. after I met Peel, mm. you know, um, which was strange really. Oh, that's right, because I hadn't actually, I got sent a lot of records by Flying Nun, but I hadn't started to write it until later on. Because mm. I would have asked him to play Getting Older by the and they did that thing the go-betweens that I, I think doesn't happen that often but it's, it's always lovely when it does where when a band has two distinct writers mm. after a while and competing they, as well competing and distinct writers they they start to occasionally write songs where you can see they've influenced each other you yeah. know like Grant could write a Robert song and vice versa they yes. did have their own yes. thing going yes. and I guess a good example of that is like Lennon and McCartney you know like mm. Paul could write quite a good John Lennon song and occasionally vice versa yeah and I think that well you know I, the things I remember about uh, uh, Lennon and McCartney is um, 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 yeah, they, they improved each other mm. Lennon would be acerbic and say oh that's too na- that's too Mm-mm. naffy or pansy-ish to say Paul mm. like, yeah, there's a story about um, the song um, she was just 17 you know and um, I saw her, what is it I saw her standing there and blah 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 if you know what I mean 
You so Lennon wrote that line whereby it opens the song up. It's kind of salacious. Yes, yeah, yeah. But, but it's more interesting than what yes. McCartney was proposing. Yeah. And that's the influence they had. I mean, well, a good one I, I hadn't heard about this until just recently is um, in Hey Jude, mm. there's the line, the movement you need is on your shoulder. Right. And Lennon says, and it's like a nonsense lyric, a placeholder. Yeah. And then Lennon says, now keep that, that's fucking gold. Yeah. And it's like, you can see that happening. You can see yeah. him going, this yeah. is a shit song, but that's a good line. Yeah. And then when you go back and listen to it and think about that, yes. it, it's like, yeah, well, again, it's one of those lines rich with meaning and yes. devoid of meaning at the same time. Yeah. You know? It's got the right amount of yeah. mystery about yeah. it. Yeah. It's not annoyingly trying hard. Yeah, yeah, it's not pretentious, but it's no. got mystique. It's like a it's like a wonderful accident mm. that makes sense. Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's yeah. that's, that's always a great line, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. He, he's, he's not pushed it. Mm. He's just it's just happened. Yeah. Illogically well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the other thing I was going to ask you, I mean, you've already sort of answered this, but I was going to say since we're back to music you know what about uh, there's been a few books about Flying Nun mm. is that something that you know do you want to collaborate with someone or you know Shane's writing his memoir yeah. Roger oh, wrote his yeah. there's been a, you know, I a couple of I think there's a few other books in the pipeline yeah there too. will be and obviously yeah exactly yeah, I, I sort of have thought well you know, I really enjoyed writing the thing about Dunedin and doing mm. it as an oral thing mm. and I sort of thought it was fun to do but when I think about writing a book it doesn't sound like fun to me. No, it's it weird. sounds like a daunting, <laughs> long project. Yeah. And I sort of have thought about writing a book about the clean, mm. because that's obvious. Yes. But I sort of feel overwhelmed by the idea of researching and doing it, mm. even though I know their story pretty well. And it feels like no one in the clean is going to write a book about the clean. Well, I can I imagine think, Hamish writing a really great memoir, oh, well, but it won't be... Oh, but I think they would... I think... Yeah, it, if you got David and Hamish together to write a book, it would be fan- fantastic. Of course. And Robert, you know, the, it would be great. Sure. David's a really, really good writer. Mm. He he probably just, and I, I think they could actually write a great book between them. Mm. I really do. But wouldn't he rather just go surfing as well, well you know, he, or something like, you know, would, uh, or, yeah. paint a, or painting or, yeah, know, I mean, record another solo album, well, you know, well, there's no need for he, him to, no. and to he, sit down and dedicate that But I, but I actually think he's a good writer, and, sure. I, and I think by the, looking at the quality of his writing, I think he actually enjoys it. Yeah, right, and so I, it's not quite the daunting choice. No, I don't think so. He could lose himself because in that he wrote, he wrote notes, he wrote a piece for the reissue of Vehicle, mm. and it's really good, mm, it's mm. really enjoyable. Mm. You know, well remembered, well recorded, and well rendered. I, I really yeah. enjoyed it. I thought, yeah, well, yeah. you should write the book, mate, not yeah. me. You know, really good mm. and quite vivid memories. And um, and Hamish is a fantastic recorder of um, how the songs came about. And there is, I mean, I do know a lot about them, and I, I I love the fact that they grew up in a town and they practice in a room. There's a place in Dunedin called the Queen's Gardens, and it's called that because Queen Victoria's a statue of her there. And it's very, it's kind of, it's beautiful, beautiful trees. And on one side, there was a, a lovely old warehouse building where the mm. Flying Nun bands started practicing. Mm. 
the, maybe the, the the clean certainly practiced there. And just across the other side of the park is is what we used to know as the early settlers museum, where there's a, a gallery of all these mutton chopped and and Victorian Scotswomen, very severe looking characters who established this mm. the settlement in Dunedin. Um, and then across, uh, you know, a hundred years later would be the clean practicing, just absolute naysayers, kickers of the establishment, making this punk rock. And that's the juxtaposition I always think of when I think of Dunedin and what those people mm. did. Mm. But, you know, because there it is, stayed Dunedin, and there's young Dunedin kicking its ass. And that's, that's my image of Dunedin, the mm. Dunedin that I feel an affinity to. Because mm. I, I admire those Scots people, mm. as I admire the Māori who got in and went sailing with them and, and, and got on, you know. It's great stories in that museum, actually. Mm. And, um, but, but I just love the idea that there was a generation that kicked against the pricks and made wonderful music in the process. Because you should always kick against the pricks. Always. I'm so mm. glad Nick Young... That's one of the few good things Nick Cove's done, is rescue... I say that facetiously. <laughs> it's one of the many wonderful things he's done is to is to resuscitate that saying yeah, from yeah, the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Kicking against the pricks. Because journalists should do it, musicians should do it, poets should do it. do it. Yeah. Everybody should do it. I feel like that's our perfect ending <laughs> point. But uh, is there is there anything else you wanted to? I left that pause there for that reason. But is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to? Oh well, I want to. Can I read another poem? Yeah, yeah, of course you can. Oh, oh. I was going to say, would you read something from Henry? But you haven't. You didn't. Oh, you know, so well, you'd, well, you'd have to look at my copy and. Um, okay, well, but well, that would be well, cool. Well, 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 um, what about the poem? Henry, come see the yeah, blue. perfect. Which, which is. Um, you know, so if you're cynical, you know, if I've been burnt out and cynical at various times about, um, you know, being a journalism and how people behave and being a reporter and being exposed to people's um, mm. bad behaviour, um, poetry is a wonderful antidote to that because there's many, for me, poetry is something to celebrate things. And um, this is a poem I wrote. I remember we had a, we're having a great summer this year, but we had a fantastic summer and 2004 and um, I really started to enjoy living at Island Bay uh, Tapu Taranga where I live still and um, I wrote this poem called um, I'd, I'd read some uh, Faber book of letters and that was a, that was something else that fed in a letter that Henry Miller and Durrell famously they had a famous correspondent Anyway, anyway, so that, that that was kind of I was thinking about all that stuff and just the sheer joy of writing as well, and 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 summer things I love. Henry, come see the blue, a day the blue sea, the blue sky, the tall heat, the fairy riding whitely by, kids yippee off the wharf, sun burning like love on our shoulders, a day sailing the bright streamers of victory. Blue like Greece, blue in Island Bay is Corfu. The day in 1938, Lawrence Durrell wrote to Henry Miller, saying, I've got a small palace of polished floorboards and a room to type. Swim in the cool sea. Come finish the book. A day where the world so ripe with every sunny possibility. Oh, do it, Henry. Come see the blue. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, I love that. I love that poem, and I love that book. Oh, you, you, thank you. Do you want to read another one? Because you didn't have that prepared, so I feel like you you might have. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Well, I like wanted to... you know. So another thing that gave me mm. uh, a real Philip in journalism when I was tiring was I went to work um, with Mihi Narangi Forbes mm. in Māori television for Native Affairs. Oh, yes, yes, because you mentioned that. So, yeah, we should talk <clears> and about that. so that was a wonderful experience. Mm. And also an experience, it was a very strange experience to find yourself in a newsroom where you were the minority, mm. Pākehā mm. minority. Mm. And I found that a real bloody, well... It gave me a slight insight into what it is to be a brown journalist yes. working in a white newsroom. Yes. Slight. I mean, I'm talking. Yeah, yeah. I was there for a year or two, on and off. Yeah. But it it was a real experience, and and I'm so grateful that um, you know, me, we'd worked together at TV Three, and mm. and that she, you know, asked me to come and you know help and 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 work. And it was so great, you know, I can't describe the richness of hearing the language all the time in the newsroom and feeling intimidated but also amazed. Oh, shit, this language is used every day mm. by these people all the time. This is how they converse. This is not some trinket or token. This is a language being spoken mm. in preference to another language. And... <laughs> Was, I know it sounds incredibly dumb, doesn't it? And like naive, but yes. It, it, I mean, I'd been on Marae and I'd heard mm. the language, mm. but to be ex to be exposed to it day to day while people are working, that was another thing. It was really great, and yeah. man, I was so lucky. I went to great places, and it was such an insight because, of course, they as Maori journalists were welcomed onto Marae with open arms. Mm -mm. You know, I could see people go, who's the Pakeha guy? What, what's he up to? <laughs> yeah. But the Māori journalists treated me as such that they soon were comfortable and, you know, it was all all good. Now, was, I don't I don't know her, but I do know a few journos and and um, plenty will, will will have a bad word to say about other journos here and there, but no one has a bad word to say about Mickey Forbes. Oh, she's fantastic. Mm. She's a, you know... She has just got tons more gas in the tank than you'd think, man. Mm -hmm. She's so motivated. I mean, she used to, she used to, you know, she'd never miss a chance to tell you about the Tariti mm. uh, and, you know, to tell you, the, tell you the history. And, but she did it in a great way. Mm. You know, it was, a, you know, just marvellous. So well, it's easy to listen when someone knows what they're actually yeah. talking about too, isn't it? Like, yeah. and, and what their motivation is, that it's around education and, and she, justice. Well, and, just actually you know, making you see yeah. things not the way you've always seen them. That's right. And that's always a good thing, and that's what journalists yeah. should be about. Yeah, yeah. You know, and famously Michael King, you know, yeah. he took up the Māori round on the Waikato Times, basically, because no one else wanted to do it. He sort of invented it mm. and taught us all. Mm. Took us on his his um, trip and journey of discovering Māori tanga and history that none of us knew. Because yeah, the accepted narrative is a, is, isn't always correct. No, Jesus. <laughs> quite often it's not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's, yeah. Well, that's, it's that's you the know, important thing it's there, one isn't side. It? It that's so right. monocultural. Yes. In, in terms of our history, and yeah. it's changing. Anyway, one of the journalists I worked with at uh, Māori Television was Jodie Ihaka. Mm -hmm. She's uh, Tia Podi, right up in Northland, and I, she, I went up there to tell a story with her, 
and she was just the best host. She took me around all the churches, all the cemeteries, um, all her places where she had been, Marae, and it was just the most amazing two days I, I spent. And um, so I, I ended up writing a poem, and you know I, I want to read it. And it's actually been made into a um, phantom bill stickers marvellous people that they are mm. they post up poems every so often they've done Henry come see the blue and they've done this one called Going North and it's really in homage to Jodie E. Harker and the history she taught me about you know I mean I knew about how Māori see their spirit when they die their spirit goes off mm. through the north I mean hopefully we all know all that sort of stuff but just being with her made it real mm. and this poem is called Going North The land doesn't end so much as intensify into a final offering of cliffs and rises and rocks Cape Rianga is where waters cross waters beyond a lighthouse An unsteady kuia on a marae was coming to a conclusion I will lie here soon and travel to the wide open bay where the mine clicks like a turnstile and the locals stand in the clothes of ghosts and spirits. Travel as you can up there where the sky speaks to the sea the way hands release a bird. Mm. So that's that, great, yeah. So that's, that's, and that was purely down to Jody mm. giving me that insight and always making notes I always make notes I still work I, I, I'm sort of kicking myself I'm not writing enough poems at the moment but um yeah I still I just love I love yeah but your your um you're still gathering experiences for future poems yeah I hope so sounds I hope like so angry, I hope so yeah. can I sneak another one in yeah. because again it's it, I owe this to Native Affairs we went up to Tonga to to investigate the fairy sinking, unbelievably, another one's just happened in Kiribati. Mm. Just awful. But we went to Tonga because uh, a fairy sank up there. It was just hideous. You know, it was should never have happened. It was just awful. And while we were up there reporting on how it had happened and why it had happened and what they were trying to do to make sure it didn't happen again, we were filming around the village and on the Sunday morning, we ended up going to church and seeing the locals and so I got this poem and it's called Sunday in the Islands and it's got music in it not the kind it's not three chord thrash though <laughs> a rooster crowed the villagers in their black dresses and tata that's hat and tongan and tata their black suits white white shirts the flower of their devotion a pig ambled in the rain then they began to open their mouths to listen and find one another. They began to fill up the mystery, to waken our souls. This blending of human voices, low and high and humming and lifting. They sang themselves out of themselves. They summoned their dead from under garlanded mounds, the bright sails of their embroidered names. They sang them out of the depths of their ocean and their watery wrecks. They sang for our brief moment here, offered up this, this shattering blue cathedral of song.
I've said this before with um, people I've had read. It's it's a really amazing and quite special thing to be an audience of one. You know, like this will go out and people hear the poems, but I'm sitting here, and uh, it's it's a real uh, privilege that people. You know, it's it's a really nice thing to have people mm. read poems and to be one person listening to it. It's quite amazing. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience. Well, you're bound to have. Where musicians have played a song to you? Oh yeah, yeah, not that often, but yes, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, a couple of times on the podcast and yes. in a couple of times in interviews and things. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. still in awe of what people can do with harmonics and music mm. and their voice. Mm. I, I just never tire of mm. of that. You know, mm. I just love and that. and um, yeah. I mean, and then people's willingness to go to do something that is so much about performance and having the right gear and then to go to just stripping right back like yeah. I had um, one of the early podcasts I did was with Julia Deans and I pretty much just put her on spot and said play me one of your new songs mm. and she tuned up a guitar with no microphone except for the one I was holding yeah. and played a brand new song yeah. that had been written on a keyboard and she All played right. it on a guitar you know unplugged <laughs> Completely, it was amazing, and you know, and her voice is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can't destroy a good song, yeah, can you? I mean, I mean, I well, mean a few people a, have tried, that's but, a, but that, that's a negative way of expressing, <laughs> yes, uh, you know, what I want to be a positive yes. sentiment, yes, yeah, you yeah, can tell yeah. a great song in any form, yes, the, the know, good songs survive, yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. you can spot them, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Dylan was, I mean, it's so obvious, you know, obviously, he's a poet, but you, you look at those performances, early performances. And the, the emphasis on the words is so. Oh yeah, you know, it, it, it's almost like he's accompanying a poem. Yes, I was going to say it's a reading that he's accompanying himself. Yeah, at, the, the words totally. are just the word. The words roll out so amazingly and beautifully yeah. that you just shit. You yeah. know, the music's incidental. Yeah, and Carl, Leonard Cohen's the only really other example, and of course that that's even mm. more obvious because he was yeah. a published Down poet and 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 a, a, a sort of relatively naive musician in a way when he started and so his, his are definitely mm. readings with the company yeah, yeah. Uh, D- Dylan too though you know yeah. it sort of surprised me True. I, I was like shivers yeah mm. oh, it's, it's inspiring and all these people are inspiring you know yeah for me Lou Reed Bob Dylan because of their words mm. I I just some people don't think Lou Reed's a poet I'm thinking we've got tin ears man yeah the guy's a great poet listen to Street Hassle Street Hassle is just a short story rendered in beautiful poetry. Yeah. It's not a pleasant story. No. It's an ugly story. Well, I think, that might, pleasant characters. I think that might be the thing that puts people off that with Lou Reed. Is, and, and, you know, yes, anyone who's listened to heaps of his stuff knows there's loads of great love songs. Right. But he... I well, he's not a pleasant human being. No, I was, gonna say, I was just going to say, that's the thing is that maybe he well, didn't... Well, neither's Bob Dylan. Jesus. The thing is, maybe he didn't... I think I think you can believe that Dylan might have meant some of the love songs and maybe oh, it's yeah, hard no, for people to believe oh, that no, Lou Reed meant them. No one's written a better put-down song than Positively Forced. Of course, of course. I mean, it's like, shit, who would want to be that person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a, being sandblasted by the Sahara. I yeah, mean, yeah, you yeah. would not be standing if someone yeah. sang that to your face. That's yeah, just yeah. like, shit. Yeah. And like a Rolling Stone's not a pleasant song. No, and there are loads of them, <laughs> you know, from him. You know... 
no direction home. He just spits it at you. It's like shit. Yeah, he had a real snarl, right? Like he, oh, in, man, in, you, in that period. Oh like. man, and you look at those. You look at that movie, No Direction Home. Mm. And if you're a dumb ass reporter asking a dumb ass question, it's just you're like roasted. Just go through the floor, please. Yeah. Get me out of here. This guy's too much. But I think I think it's easier to believe that Dylan might have meant the nice songs than it than it is oh, to believe that, no Lou, that Lou Reed meant the nice oh, songs. I mean, do you yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that might be. It. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. But man, when these, these the dark corners of these people are what gives them a lot of energy. Have you ever read? Have you read the book of the first book of Lou Reed's lyrics that was published between yeah. Thought and Expression, yeah. where it has the little annotations? Oh, no, actually, I, I there's a bigger one called Pass Through Fire, which is very good. But there's this there's this one that came out in the nineties. Yes, I, that I, is I've great. Seen it. And um, you know, it's got little things like it's got the lyric to Pale Blue Eyes, and then yeah. it says at the bottom, "I wrote this song about a woman I saw in a bar. She had hazel eyes." Yeah, you know, it's just like it's classic because you just like. No. There's the proof that you know he was either always playing a character or that he didn't want you to. That song's about Nico. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But exactly, like he just wants to. Well, is it Nico? I think it is Nico. Oh, I don't know. You know. But yeah, I've been Dylan. Dylan also wrote amazingly sweet songs to those first women yeah. he fell in love with, yeah. and, and, and you know, including including one to Nico. I'll keep yeah. it with mine. Eh? Yeah. It's, oh, that's a great song. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Dylan could just write his priest Percy's song. That is a beautiful mm. song. Mm. You know, it's those it's songs that you, you discover so what, from Dylan that you just go, wow, that's such a sweet song. So what do you make of his evergreen thing? Thing, his Sinatra thing and oh, his... Wow. I mean, he's a, what, he, what he proves to me there is he's a great singer. Yeah. He's and he's good. earned the and he's long ago earned the right to do it. Yeah, wants I mean, it's, that, that, it's, but. it's not for me, you know, because mm. I mean, life's short. And I mean, I've heard, I've listened to that stuff as a result of reading the guy's book, mm. you know, Richard, um, Richard F. Thomas's book, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I, because he, he's enthusiastic about, oh, is it, well, what's the one, there's one um, before the, the, there's a triple, isn't there? Yeah, triple. And then there's one before that. Fallen Angels. And there's one before that? Yeah, the shadow one. God. Anyway, yeah, there's three, and one of them. Yeah, I, I sort of, I sort of stopped after. I mean, really stopped. No, I mean, really not. You know, stopped in a, in a being mad about Dylan after uh, Love and Theft. I think. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that to me is great. And then there was the weird one. The other guy wrote the lyrics. I mean, that's not bad. Yeah, together through life. Yeah, but. Um, uh, when you know, not dark yet, and, and that stuff is mm. so great that you mm, just think, mm. Well, I'm sure I'll listen to that again. Mm. I mean, I've heard those other albums, but nothing's really yeah. clonked me over the back of the head and said, Wow, yeah, this is taking me somewhere else. And, and good on him, you know, he's allowed to do what he wants to do, yeah, yeah. And great, I mean, the guy doesn't really live in our time, no, nah. that's what I love about yeah, him, yeah, yeah. You know, he'll sing to you about the Civil War as though it's still happening, yeah. and that's yeah. what I mean about that thing I was talking yeah, about before, yeah. where everything's happening at the same time. Yeah. Dylan does that. Yeah. You know, so he, he lifts the line off Orvid. He's not ripping him off, he, he's just placing him within within yeah, his yeah. work. Yeah. And as Dylan says, someone said, oh, you stole that off Orvid. And Dylan will says, you try it. <laughs> yeah. And that's a great comeback. Yeah. Because if the only great line in Dylan's song is the line by Orvid, you know, he's been yeah. found out. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But it ain't. 
it just fits in there beautifully because yeah. they're of the same mind they're equal minds mm. Dylan has classical poetic mind he, and he knows it he's mm. read every bastard mm. he's read everything that you need to read mm. you know he's just read them all absorbed them you know, he went through the French poets, he went through the Roman poets, mm. he went through the Greek poets. He knows them. Mm. He knows Odysseus backwards. He knows Homer like the back of his hand. So yeah, if, he's yeah, gonna, yeah. if he's going to be asked about what he feels about Joan Baez, he's going to say, I'm like that guy who had to be strapped to the mask when he passes the sirens because he'll drown. They'll call him into the water. They're but it's not just that musically. He's listened to all the Irish oh, balladry, yeah. you know, well, the as, well as, the, as yeah. well as the kind of blues he's and d- stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's just, you know, the guy's a... Well, he's, he's, like, the, he's the figure of the 20th century for me in terms of music and poetry. He's just unbelievable. It'll take another 200 years to catch up with the guy. Mm. You know? And I think, like, maybe part of it is actually just thinking about it now, like, because he doesn't front the media all the time, because yeah, he, he does it on he his, because yeah. he picks and chooses his moment. That that it probably leaves a lot of time to do this reading, you know, rather than you know, oh, well, rather than wa- play the game. Well, he's not wasting his time. He doesn't That's need what I mean. to. No, he, he doesn't need yeah. to. He, he he did play the game, and it and it nearly killed him. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. he was so wired up in the sixties. Yeah, on whatever he was on. Yeah, and he can't do that. You kill yeah. yourself. Yeah, you know. Um, I feel like we could go on forever. No, no. And so what, what we might do is one day you might have to come back and we might just talk music. But I've, I've loved talking to you. I mean, I've talked to you before. I've, I've met you a few times and, and I've, I've enjoyed so much of the work that you've put out into this world. So it was a great pleasure to have you here to talk about bits and pieces of it because I feel like it's a rich and interesting life you've had. Oh, well, thanks, Simon. I, I, I don't never really think about it like that. I think I've been incredibly lazy and not achieved what I should have achieved but it's nice to hear you say that yeah well it's always for someone else to say it you know that's the thing I think right well it's very kind of you and you know honestly I do feel like I've still got to work harder work harder because I haven't done enough (laughs) yeah I do I feel like I'm lazy I feel like I'm cruising at the moment but it's a good it's it's a great place to be actually I I don't feel like I've got anything to prove Mm. Uh, and I don't know yeah, because I, for years I wanted to write a novel because it was the, it was the cliche that the journalist had a novel in the, yeah. in the lower in the drawer. Yeah, always. Nah, it's not really what. I'll, no, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm delighted to have written a few poems that have connected with people. Honestly, yeah, just to write one or two that people go, oh, I like that. that. That's enough. That's enough. You know, there's too much. There's too much stuff. If you found someone who liked what you did, well, be grateful, and I'm bloody grateful for anybody who enjoys the poems. Oh, well, it was lovely to, to, to hear you read some of them, and, um, and as I say, to talk about everything else. Thanks. Thank you, Sam.